pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Here's the reality. Emergencies usually strike without warning. We're surprised when the stock market crashes or power goes out. Certainly, with earthquakes, there's no warning. These things happen. And when it's breaking news, it's too late to prepare. Now you're scrambling and panicked best thing to do is prepare for natural disasters or emergency situations while things are still calm. So ask yourself right now, could you feed yourself or your family for two weeks with the food you have at home at this moment? If not, it's time to act and secure an emergency food supply. I use my Patriot Supply. And you should, too. A two-week food kit will get you started. This week, it's on sale for only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com. All right, and welcome to another exciting adventure here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick, Annie, on Southern Sense, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, on the road, the road warrior, Curtis Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? All right. I'm making progress down the corridor, I-95 corridor, and as we talked before off the air, there's a lot of people out heading south, so I got plenty (laughs) of company. Oh man, yeah, it's, it's it's gorgeous weather out here right now. I mean, it's such a beautiful day, and I'm sorry I'm stuck in the studio for the next three hours. 
<laughs> but here we are. Here we are. Anyway, yeah. want to welcome everyone that's up listening in the studio uh, as well as up in our chat room. Uh, it's been a very interesting week. We had the um, memorial for Kel back on the uh, 10th, and then the next day was 9-11, and this has been one hellacious week, and we had the Democrat debate. I can't believe they're going to have 12 of these things. What are we into, like number three now? We've got nine more of these things to go. Oh, my goodness. It is uh, it's crazy. It is crazy. Oh, the Democrats are nuts. Oh, man. Anyway, Curtis, we got ourselves a great show. We've got four guests coming in today. We have another candidate running for South Carolina District 1 for Congress, formerly Mark Sanford's seat. Uh, Kathy Landing will be joining us. Matter of fact, this coming Monday, she will be here uh, at my Tea Party meeting, meeting our members and her constituents. Uh, so she'll be joining us the first part of the show. And then we have Judge Janine Pirro. She's got a brand new book out, Radicals, Resistance, Revenge, The Left's Plot to um, Remake America. She'll be uh, on with us for a short while. And then Dr. Bruce Hartman, he also has a new book out, Your Faith Will Make You Well. He'll be joining us. And then we're going to close the show out with uh, Ken Benway. Uh, he is the founder of Special Operations Speaks. He's doing something this year, a boot camp for veterans that are running for office. Uh, that's going to be a, a lot of fun to talk to him. He's great to talk with. Uh, so we got a lot going on, Curtis, a really busy schedule today. Well, I'm looking forward to it, as always. Yeah. Ah, uh, man. Um, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And something important happened this year. Uh, Congress and Trump signed into law the extension of the 9-11 Victims Fund. And one of the champions of that fund uh, is a victim of 9-11 himself, uh, Detective Luis Alvarez. And he led a very, very gallant fight uh, for the 9-11 fund, coming before Congress and speaking. And shortly after he did that, he passed away. So today's dedication is going to go out to NYPD Detective Luis Alvarez. His end of watch was June 29th of this year. And uh, this is going to be a hard one for me to do because I'm already starting to uh, break down on this one. This is coming from partially from the New York Times. Please bear with me. New York Times, CBS News, and Patch.com. And it starts off by Sam Roberts. Louis G. Alvarez, a former New York City detective, who pleaded with Congress to extend health benefits to police officers, firefighters, and other emergency workers who responded to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. He died on Saturday, June 29, 2019, in a hospice in Rockville Center, New York. He was only 53. His family announced his death in a post on Facebook. The cause 
with complications of colorectal cancer, for which Mr. Alvarez received a diagnosis in 2016. The disease was linked to the three months he spent at the site of the toppled World Trade Center towers in lower Manhattan, searching for survivors and for remains of his fellow officers on nearby rooftops and in the toxic rubble at Ground Zero. Mr. Alvarez, a father of three sons, including two teenagers, delivered a raspy appeal before a House Judiciary Subcommittee in Washington on June 11th of this year to replenish the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. He appeared alongside John Stewart, the former host of The Daily Show, who delivered a passionate call for justice on behalf of the victims. The refunding bill passed the full committee unanimously, and Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the Republican majority leader, agreed to allow the legislation to go to a floor vote in August. You need to be covered, Mr. Alvarez said in an interview on Fox News a week before his testimony. I'm lucky to have the health care that I've got, but there are guys out there who don't have it. In terms of going through the stress of fighting cancer, they're also fighting the financial stress of the health care. He added, I know one special, and I did what all the other guys did. Now we are paying the price for it, he continued. I got sick 16 years after the fact, and there's workers out there who say, this isn't going to happen to me. I'm okay. The time has passed. The time doesn't. And it's not going to pass. Before the House committee, Mr. Alvarez said, I will not stand by and watch as my friends with cancer from 9-11 like me are valued less than anyone else because of when they get sick. You made me come here the day before my 69th round of chemo. I'm going to make sure that you never forget to take care of the 9-11 responders. The next day, though, he was too disoriented to receive treatment. Tests determined that his liver was failing. Within a week, he was admitted to a hospice in Rockville Center on Long Island, New York. Luis Gustavo Alvarez was born in October 1965 in Havana, Cuba. After graduating in 1983 from Monsignor McClancy Memorial High School in East Elmhurst neighborhood, he served in the Marines and studied at City College of the City University of New York. He joined the New York City Police Department in 1990. Initially assigned to the 108th Precinct in Long Island City, Queens, in 1993, he was transferred to the Narcotics Division and promoted to detective two years later. After working undercover as a detective first grade, he sought a less stressful assignment and in 2004 volunteered for the bomb squad. Mr. Alvarez was recognized five times for excellent police work. He retired in 2010. He later worked for the Department of Homeland Security in a less demanding job, retiring 
when his illness became too debilitating. His survivors include his mother, Aida, his father, Felipe, his wife, Elaine Parker Alvarez, his sons, David, Tyler, and Benjamin, his sister, Aida Lugo, and his brothers, Fernando and Phil. The $7.3 billion September 11th Victim Compensation Fund was opened to emergency responders and their families by the federal government in 2011 to compensate for deaths and illnesses related to the toxic exposure from the terrorist-related aircraft crashes of September 11th, 2001, and the cleanup during the immediate aftermath. The fund is projected to be depleted by the end of 2020. We will reach that point soon, most likely this year, Senator Chuck Schumer of New York said, when more will have died from the 9-11 related illnesses than on 9-11 itself. So far, about 21,000 claimants have received some $5 billion. An additional 19,000 or so claims are pending. Hundreds of New York City police officers honored a fallen detective who fought until his final days for the extension of health benefits for 9-11 first responders. The funeral ceremony for Detective Luis Alvarez was held at Immaculate Conception Church in Astoria, New York. Alvarez died Saturday, June 29th, in a hospice center after a three-year battle with cancer. He attributed his illness to the three months he spent digging through the rubble after the World Trade Center's Twin Towers collapsed in the 2001 terrorist attack. Lewis asked me and the family that we remember at this mass. Everyone who died on 9-11, Reverend John P. Harrigan said at the service, before he became a hero across this country, he was always a hero of mine, said Louis' son, David Alvarez. He was always the man that I looked up to who inspired me. They won't be forgotten. President Donald Trump signed legislation to preserve a fund for the 9-11 first responders after a blistering push by advocates and New York lawmakers. The Republican president put the bill on the books fewer than 18 months before the cash-strapped 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund benefiting survivors of the 2001 terrorist attacks was slated to expire. Today, we come together as one nation to support our September 11th heroes, to care for their families, and to renew our eternal vow to never, ever forget, Trump said during the ceremony at the White House Rose Garden. The bill was formally named the Never Forget Forgotten. I'm sorry. Never Forget the Heroes, James Zaroga, Ray Pfeiffer, and Louise Alvarez permanent authorization of the September eleventh Victim Compensation Fund Act in honor of two former NYPD cops and an ex FD NY firefighter who died of diseases linked 
to their ground zero time. Luis Alvarez, the Astoria detective who fought tirelessly for 9-11 first responders before his death, was honored for his activism on the 18th anniversary of the attacks. Governor Andrew Cuomo posthumously awarded Alvarez the Governor's Medal of Public Service this past Wednesday, citing his successful push to save the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund before he died of cancer this year. He went down to Washington literally in his last days, and he looked the Congress of the United States in the eyes, and he spoke the truth from his heart, Cuomo said. Alvarez's widow, Elaine Parker Alvarez, and his son Tyler accepted the state's highest medal on his behalf in the ceremony on Wednesday. Alvarez was instrumental in advocating for the Never Forget the Heroes Act, which Congress passed in July and President Trump has signed. Today's show is dedicated to Detective Alvarez. It is also dedicated to all the other brave men and women that serve as first responders across this nation, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. And it is also dedicated to the brave men and women who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its amazing future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. Challenged by tyrants, who envy. 
And we're back. You're here listening to Seven Cents here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, Southern hyphen sense and dot com. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick Annie, along with my co host Curtis C. S. Bennett. Oh man, Curtis. <laughs> Weird. Uh, that was a tough one. That was a tough one. Yeah. But uh, we got through it. Very moving. Yeah. And it's been a week yeah. of moving, you know, moving cookies. Yeah, it has been. It's been a tough week, uh, and uh, I'm glad everyone's here with us. I want to say hi once again to everyone in the chat room and those listening in on the studio and their smart devices. Uh, we're waiting for our first guest to uh, call in, Kathy Landing. Uh, she's a local businesswoman that is running for Congress here out of the great state of South Carolina, uh, my own District 1, and she will be at my Tea Party uh, meeting this coming uh, Monday. So she should be calling in very shortly. So we should have a lot to talk about with her. Um, talking about the uh, the 9-11 uh, celebration, not celebrations, but memorials they had across the nation, I pulled up a YouTube clip. And let me see if I can get this thing queued up. And just bear with me for a second. Uh, oh, come on. No, 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 no. I want to stop. Stop, 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 stop. No, no, no. This thing's not letting me pause. Holy cow. Come on. I don't know why this is doing this to me. It's it's not. Uh, let me do this. Come on, pause. There we go. Finally got it paused. Um, technology. A stunt. <laughs> technology, yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even use a dial-up phone. I'm so bad. <laughs> anyway, um, the son of a 9-11 victim. Uh, this gentleman lost his mom on 9-11. And I had the news clipping here somewhere, but I'll probably find it towards the end of the show. Um, he was at the memorial on the 9-11 in New York City. And last year he spoke out against those that were using, the politicians that were using 9-11 memorial to politic. And he uh, criticized them for that. And this year he went after the uh, squad as as Trump calls them, yeah, um, he went after. Yeah, he went after the squad. I don't have the gentleman's name directly in front of me, but I want to play this this clip, especially going after Ilian Omar, who said someone did something. Here's the clip. Some people did something. Said a freshman congresswoman from Minnesota. To support and justify the creation of care, 
Today I am here to respond to you exactly who did what to whom. Madam, objectively speaking, we know who and what was done. There is no uncertainty about that. Why your confusion? On that day, 19 Islamic terrorist members of Al-Qaeda killed over 3,000 people and caused billions of dollars of economic damage. Is that clear? But as to whom? I was attacked. Your relatives and friends were attacked. Our constitutional freedoms were attacked. And our nation's founding on Judeo-Christian principles were attacked. That's what some people did. Got that now? We are here today, Congresswoman, to tell you and the squad just who did what to whom. Show respect in honoring them, please. American patriotism in your position demanded. For God and country, amen. Amen on that one. Absolutely amen. Did he not get that completely right? And I'm sorry, I know his first name is Frank, Frank Lagerty or something like that, Jr. And I apologize. I don't know where I put the news article. I should have written it down in my notes, and I didn't. Uh, but it, did he not nail that 100%, Curtis? He was right on point. I mean, these, these folks, they, they always have their say, and it's, it's nice when we have an opportunity to respond um, intelligently. Absolutely. And he didn't politicize it, and he got it completely right. Right. There are victims here, not just the people that died, but those that are left behind. And as we just did in the dedication, every day there are first responders that are getting sick still. I mean, Detective Alvarez did not get sick until 16 years after working Ground Zero and could trace his illness directly back to Ground Zero. Who's to say that 20, 25 years from now, someone else does not come down with another cancer or some other form of illness because of their work at Ground Zero? So that's why I'm glad that this this 9-11 compensation fund has been fully funded well beyond. I think it's supposed to be up until something like uh, 2090, 2095 or something like that. So by then, the very last first responder would have passed away um, fully funded. But someone did something here, the squad. Hello. Something did happen. And no, CARE did not form after 9-11. CARE actually formed back in the end of 93, beginning of 94. And why? Because Islamic terrorists attacked the World Trade Center the first time in February of 1993. I was on duty that day. That is a day I will never, ever forget. Yeah, I was wondering if I heard. I was wondering about her time frame for that. I was, I was pretty certain, like, was, you know, like you said, it was, it was they, around long before 9-11. No, and it was, it was an excuse to put a good face on radical Islam. And that's why CARE came to being. CARE was formed by the Muslim Brotherhood. Make no mistake about that. CARE was formed to also help support Hamas and Hezbollah. And help do fundraising for them here in the United States. Hello? The Holy Land, uh, what was that uh, scandal that was formed in Florida? That was not 
born out of two, 2001. That was born out of 1993. But no, no, this is, this is the Takia. This is a perfect example of Takia. And that's what she's doing. She's trying to put it over on you. And oh, by the way, did you catch, Curtis, that the New York Times, in their reporting of the 9-11, uh, turned around and said, planes crashed into the building. 9-11 was caused because planes crashed into the building. No. Islamic terrorists drove those planes, hijacked them, and drove them into those, those buildings. That's probably what's in the school textbooks these days. The planes did it. Yeah, yeah, the planes did. No, not not terrorists, but the planes did. We've got our guest in the line, and if the computer just will cooperate with me, I can bring her on. But it's being a little bit fidgety. Here we go. Let's try this one more time. And good afternoon to Kathy Landing, running for Congress out of South Carolina's district number one, my district. Good afternoon, Kathy. How are you today? I'm fine, Anne. Thanks so much. How are you? I am doing just ducky, and we've got a gorgeous day here in South Carolina. What a Carolina blue sky out there. What a wonderful day to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much. It is absolutely beautiful, especially compared to last week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We had a lot of fun last week. A lot of fun. Anyway, uh, my co-host is calling in from the road. He's driving between Philadelphia and Florida. So uh, my co-host is Curtis C.S. Bennett, author of how many books now, Curtis? About 26. About 26. And one of them is being made into a movie. So you're in good company here. Listen, um, you're coming into a crowded field. Not as crowded as it was back in, what was it, uh, 2012, when, uh, uh, oh, Jesus, he's a friend of mine, too. Mark Sanford uh, ran for the seat where we had 16 people running. Right now, I think we've got five officially running for the Republican seat, and you're one of those um, running for the seat. Why did you jump into the race? I jumped into the race because I have been serving for two years in the public sector um, on city council or town council in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and um, came from a background 34 years as a financial advisor and, um, and financial planner. And I have found that my communication skills, diplomacy, and also my um, also my ability to solve problems under all situations has really worked very, very well in the public sector. Well, you've got a fantastic um, website out there, which is your name, com, that people can go to and learn about you and even to donate to your uh, campaign. Boy, I'm having some brain farts. I just started off the dedication to the show to a fellow NYPD officer who just recently died this year. So I'm a little – I got myself a little rattled. <laughs> so just bear oh, with me as I pull myself together here. Mm-hmm. Um what I liked about your website, you not only put your issues out there, but you also put out there a survey for people to take and tell you what they think priorities are. And it's, it's important that our elected officials listen to the constituency. That's something we're not seeing coming out of Joe Cunningham, though. Absolutely. In fact, we actually we've put several uh, press releases which didn't come up in the paper, but we have them on the website, asking him to respond to things such as. Um, 
comments that we made by AOC about, you know, the, the concentration camps at the border and comments that were made in some of the earlier Democratic debates about all of the candidates wanting uh, universal health care for all and also providing health care for um, uh, the illegals. So we've, we've tried to have him respond to things that he doesn't. It is extremely important as an elected official, especially the House. It's the people's house. And it's very important that we be in touch, that we listen, that we follow and uh, not follow, but that we lead, but that we follow what people are are saying so that we can then make good decisions in the House and stay in close touch. Yeah, well, one thing we find is that uh, Beer Can Joe, when he does come to the district to do his, quote, town halls, he never seems to take questions. He talks to people. You should say he talks at people. But he never takes questions. So if you were to come, and you are coming to our tea party here uh, this coming Monday, um, you will be taking questions from the constituents, right? Absolutely. Oh, it's it's extremely important that you be able to think on your feet. You certainly have to do that a lot in Congress. And what we see so often are people that are so poorly informed that they aren't capable of doing that. So I'm looking forward to it. Oh, absolutely. Now, what I found really amazing is that we've got a Congress that is so stymied that the only thing they can seem to get done is to talk about impeaching Trump. And this is, what, the 10th or 12th time that they've tried to find something on him to impeach him with, and now they're going forward with these rules to do the investigation to impeach. Don't you think it's time we put a stop to that? It it absolutely is. Unfortunately, with Jerry Nadler at the helm, that seems to be all he wants to do is everything he can to stop the process. The fact of the matter is that the Constitution clearly says that the number one job of the House of Representatives to, is to control the purse strings, uh, put in the vernacular, and th- we don't even have a budget. We haven't even passed a budget in the House since 2010. Speaking of reasons why I'm running, that's a big part of it. I've been budgeting and helping families and corporations and foundations plan their cash flow and their needs for 34 years, and someone needs to Tell these folks we have to focus like a laser beam on job number one, which is get a budget and make sure that we are, in fact, controlling the purse strings and not letting it run rampant like it has for years. Well, I've always asked this one of anyone running for office for Congress. Now, would you put in where you have to when you pass legislation that you have to not only balance the budget, but to show where you are going to pay down our deficit? As far as putting actual legislation, I would love to have a balanced budget amendment. That would be fantastic. Now, what it will take to get to that point is a question mark, but I do have a plan in mind of how we would you know, get the Congress to initially move towards balancing. I think I've studied several of the different plans, the Penny Plan, which is over 10 years, the Penny's Plan, which is Rand Paul's, which is 2% a year over five years. I think in, those are all like mini sequestrations. I would much rather see a thoughtful process, but a definite process, where we cut the redundancy and waste. So as far as immediately moving towards legislation, I think we first have to get there, and then we could put something in place to make sure we stay there. Um, As far as paying down the debt, the debt is ridiculous. The most important thing is that we not let it keep getting bigger, um, which is where we have to cut this deficit. We have to get a balanced budget. um, But there are a lot of strategies out there for reducing our debt in the long run, 
and um, and and I have a lot of ideas on that. Probably too much to even go into on the radio right now. Um, let's just say that we have an awful lot of assets, probably north of 350 trillion in assets in this country, and there are a lot of places right now that can be identified where assets are sitting fallow. They aren't being used or they're underutilized. We could go through and really start to work on that and change our our balance sheet by paying down some debt with with uh, things that aren't. We also need to, I believe strongly, and it's been talked about a little bit recently, and as an investment person for 34 years, um, I believe strongly we should start considering refinancing some of our debt for a longer period. Mexico has 100-year bonds, and we're in much better shape than Mexico. I'm not sure if we should do 100-year, but if we just did some 50-year bonds, right now the 30-year treasury is around 2%. We did 50-year bonds. We probably could do those around 2%, and how great would it be if we knew that we were in that position for such a long period not to see those rates climb? Well, we have a problem with funding the government, too, because the government, they'll take our money, but not always do what they're supposed to be doing with it, uh, which is why I'm a supporter of the fair tax, not a flat tax, Mm -hmm. but the fair tax. How do you stand on that? Mm -hmm. I believe strongly. First of all, I am very, very happy that we did the tax cuts that we did, and I actually wish that had been the first. It's too late now. I wish it had been the first thing we did rather than tackling health care first and then having that fail. Um, but that has unleashed tremendous growth. So, yes, I would like to see us come in, go further with a fair tax and, again, a very thoughtful process of balancing the budget as we uh, – well, just having a budget, first of all, and then balancing our budget so that we um, are, are able to move forward. If we can get that under control, it will be so much easier to keep this strong economy going. That's a very important part. We've gotten – we've unleashed the growth. We now need to move forward with with, uh, making sure we can sustain it, and we don't have to have a recession. Everybody thinks it's a natural thing. It is not. It's usually because of a mistake that's made in policy or because of over-exuberance in terms of um, what's happened, like the markets in 99, for instance. But uh, I, I do think that some form of a fair tax would be a great next step. We also have a problem. Oh, go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, um, Donald Trump has three challenges now, I understand. One is from the estate. <laughs> um, they don't have a not a not a chance, you know, to, to beat Donald Trump. But why do you think they they challenge him and, and, and waste taxpayers, you know, money? Well, it's very clear from the messaging we hear now, a lot of it, of course, is brought to us, most of it is brought to us through the media. It's very clear that they actually want to try hard to see our country fail between now and then so that they can blame President Trump for it, which is absurd. I don't think they actually do think we're foolish enough to fall for this. Uh, because a good example is Bill Maher's comments about, you know, we just need a recession. If we have a recession, then that, well, that hurts a lot of people. People lose their jobs. They lose their homes. All kinds of terrible things happen in recessions. And we certainly, it's hard to imagine that they are doing their best. So if they do anything worthwhile other than sit there and talk about impeachment, um, for instance, if they were to go in and really negotiate, I don't know how much is left to negotiate, but the last couple of things of USMCA, if they were to actually pass anything, pass a budget, pass the, uh, the North American new version, um, then it would look like they were giving President Trump a win. So that it looks like they're just stalling. That's what it looks And it's sad because I, I, I think we all can see what's happening. Maybe, maybe I should have made well, myself clear. I was talking about Repub- Republican challengers. 
Oh, excuse me. I, no, you know what? I actually didn't catch that. I apologize. Um, why are they out there? I think they might be out there because it, it appears that they each have a platform that they think is a little bit distinctive. So maybe they kind of want their name out there just to for some uh, perhaps some attention so that they can be part of the conversation. I, I don't know. I can't get inside their heads. <laughs> so, but yes, I do think it does <laughs> take a lot of people's time. <laughs> well, there are still out there establishment Republicans that are never Trumpers and nothing you say or do or nothing Trump does is ever going to change their mind. And that is unfortunate, you know, because that's not what the voter wants. That's not what the voters putting them there for. Clearly, you're right. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, this president has done an an excellent job of not only unleashing the animal spirits of growth in this country, but but being clear on direction. And that, you know, in terms of in, in terms of making sure that jobs in America, making America first, keeping America first, now keeping America great. Uh, is his main objective, and he he does it in every conversation he seems to have with foreign governments, as well as here, is that he's putting America first, and it and it shows, and we appreciate that. Well, talk about putting America first, putting South Carolina first. Um, we have a problem here with infrastructure, especially the roadways. Um, it, I-95 runs straight north and south. We've got some major roadways, interstate roadways here, but we have a problem with money not coming back for our roads and bridges. Um, What would you be doing to try to get money back to us? I'd like to understand, and this would be a good question for someone who's in the state house now too, which is I'd like to understand why more of the money, for instance, the sales tax, the different things that have been done to increase, but yet it takes forever to get it to come back. I know we have a major project in, uh, in where I live in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, that is a uh, uh, Highway 41 that is very tied up, not so much just because of money, but because of the required studies, the National Environmental Policy Act studies, NEPA studies. And these things take forever. It's extremely important to consider the impact on the surrounding area, the environment, et cetera. But for it to be something like we have an urgent situation in that particular highway and uh, today, and, and yet they're telling us it won't be completed because of all of these delays and regulations until 2026, seven years out. So I think what I would be trying to do is to see, just like President Trump has done um, for businesses, is let's see what we can do to look at these regulations and how can we make them a little bit more user-friendly so things aren't delayed for years and years that are really urgent for the first district and the state, as well as really the country. Well, you know, you mentioned regulations, and we've got a lot of bureaucracies in our government. You know, these are individuals, little civil servants, that create all these regulations that are enforced with the power of the law. And they're treated as if they are laws when the law there is no actual law in the book. Consequently, people end up losing their businesses. Uh, they, they, I have a friend of mine that actually lost a business down in the Atlanta area that covered Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina with medical services. You know, we have these regulations being enforced, and people end up being actually even arrested and placed in jail, becoming felons because of a regulation placed in place by a bureaucrat. What would you do to help curtail these and put the law back in the hands of the legislator? Um, 
I would I would carefully study it. Well, we would have to be something where I'd be looking at a specific circumstance, but I can tell you this has already come up even on the local level uh, in city council where I have been someone who has always stood up for, let's see if this even makes sense to do. And if it doesn't make sense, let's roll it back. And fortunately, our president has been able to do that a lot with executive orders because so many things were put into place by executive orders. So he was able to un, un, uh, undo them without a lot of help from Congress. Um, but we would have to go through each situation and look at that. I'm, in this respect, I'm definitely along the lines of more of a Tea Party or a Libertarian. I believe strongly that it's, it's important to have some regulations, but we're way over-regulated on a lot of things. That's a huge amen to that, you know, because I was reading some of these articles and doing my research, and I found that there are actually people ended up with felony convictions because of a bureaucrat interpreting a regulation, where a different bureaucrat may even t- interpret it in a different manner, and he would not have been charged with the crime. It's it's crazy, and it's ruining people's lives. Well, and then the way to undo something, if you've been treated, is to hire an attorney and start, you know, suing and going through the system. And that's extraordinarily expensive. I believe very, very strongly that we need tort reform. And uh, when I was first looking into running for Congress, one of the first things I learned was that there were no investment advisors and no financial planners in Congress whatsoever and hadn't been for many years, which I think helps explain why we don't have a budget. And why nobody is focusing closely on the cash flow of this country and how we can better utilize it and not waste it um, and not have the deficit. But I also feel that when I when I learned that we had nearly 60 percent attorneys, which I don't think is a surprise to anybody, um, you know, it's almost impossible to get to get tort reform if everybody there kind of has a vested interest in seeing that industry be the one that's in control of everything. I mean, it's hard to name an industry that isn't impacted cost-wise because of the tort system. No, that's that's the truth there. You know, another huge issue, especially here in South Carolina, is immigration. Illegal aliens that are being treated better than our veterans or our senior citizens. And it looks now that Trump is making a good headway on the border with this asylum where they have to stop at the first country they cross and apply for asylum before they get here. But a huge problem with our immigration system is is visas being overstayed. This is what brought the 9-11 hijackers here to the United States. And this loophole has yet to be fixed. What would you do to help enforce our immigration laws? We have to have a better verification system uh, for employers. It, 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 everything's in place. It's just not being enforced. We're not, it's not being used properly. But uh, so, again, all of these things have to be looked at closely. But we have to make sure that people are not able to, when they get that visa, that there is a system where they have to check back in. And I know people say, oh, they don't do it, and then you can't find them and all. But they must be working somewhere. They must be doing something in order to stay here. And, of course, if they're on the welfare rolls, then that's what they're living on. One way or another, we have to crack down on the rules we have in place. If we were enforcing what we have in place and then um, improving them, we would, we would, we should be able to move forward with a uh, a much better system. I, it's amazing to me because I happen to have a daughter that lives in London right now. She went over there to get her master's degree, and she'll be coming home on Tuesday because her visa ran out. And people joked about her overstaying her visa. She said, "I would never do that." 
we've and she's we've we've paid extra money for her to have various legal visas, internship visas, and other things. And I just, uh, it's very frustrating that the law and and she'll be leaving. And they make a big deal. If you go out of the country and if you come back in, they want to know exactly how long you're going to be there. We need to be doing this. It doesn't make sense then that the UK is enforcing theirs. Again, maybe they have some of the same problems, but they're enforcing it with someone like my daughter. Why in the world aren't we enforcing it here? So That's a question I've always asked. You know, I don't no other country that has people coming in without any sort of uh, – Oh, good Lord, am I having some brain farts? A screening method. Some They have to have something. And I, I'm right. sorry, I used to own a travel agency, and I remember having to issue those visas for people traveling over to Europe, Asia, everywhere else. But we're not requiring these visas to be enforced here. And I, I find that hypocritical. Anyway, um, Another thing that you have on your website, you talk about term limits. And if term limits do not get passed or amendment to the Constitution does not pass, would you self-term limit yourself? Did we lose Kathy? Curtis, I think we lost our guest. It sounds like we lost Kathy. I hope she calls back in. Something happened. She could have. I know she was driving, so she may have also hit a dead zone. I think her call dropped. But uh, she, I like the way she sounds. You know, I really do like her. And we'll see what she says when she comes to our tea party meeting on Monday. And uh, I'm going to try to have each one of the candidates on the show. I'm waiting for uh, Nancy Mace uh, to get back to me. Um, we had her on the show when she ran against Mark Sanford. Uh, hopefully, I'll get her back on the show here again too do that also. One of the things I'd like to do, Curtis, uh, that we did when Sanford was running for Congress, uh, we had all of the candidates called in on the same show, and we did a round robin. Oh, man, was that a fun show? It was like a herding cats at times. But uh, that was just Mike and I, and we had 12 of the 16 candidates on at the same time. It looks like Kathy called back in. Hi, Kathy. I was in the middle of asking you a question when your call dropped. You probably hit a dead zone because I do know that you're on the road campaigning right now. Uh, But I noticed on your website, one of the things you talk about is term limits. And if we do not get a term limit amendment, would you self-term limit yourself? So I actually was answering this, and I could hear you fine. I didn't know what happened because <laughs> I could hear you the whole time. <laughs> anyway, and I'm not driving. I actually stopped. I'm about to have a – there's a September fest for the Republican Party at Sun City today. So anyway, so I'm going to be going to that. Um, so um, the answer is I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. My understanding, and I've talked to a number of junior and other Congress people about this, is that you are so far down the totem pole when you start – that you need to develop some seniority just to be able to even have much impact. And um, that would probably be corrected if we had term limits because the people that are there 20 years get to carry all the weight. And those that come in with fresh ideas and backgrounds that might be really needed like mine might not be even able to say anything for a while. So the answer to your question is I would not self-limit in the sense that I'd say, okay, I'm only going to be here six or eight years. Because I think that becomes defeatist from the beginning. If they know you're only planning to be there a short time, one, somebody might not even want to vote for you. But two, they might feel you won't be there long enough to make a difference. What I would like to do is when I get there, which I am looking forward to doing, hit the ground running, work extremely hard, and 
try to bring about term limits because if we could have some period of time that is reasonable and, and maybe three to four terms for House, I don't know how many you'd say for Senate, maybe two, I've heard people say two, 12 years, um, if that could be passed, then we wouldn't have the problem that when someone gets there who has a great background that's needed at that time, that it'll be forever before they can even have an impact. All right. Fair enough. Now, also health care is on your website. And uh, hello, Nancy Pelosi. I read both the House bill and the Senate bill before you made that stupid statement saying we have to pass it before we know what's in it. Uh, and I've written several articles on this on Obamacare, including what was un- unconstitutional in there and things to do to reform health care. Uh, what would you suggest as a reform to our healthcare system that we have currently today? Well, for start, I just want to say that when my husband and I were so disgusted the day that Obamacare was passed, the first thing we did is we pulled out our Gadsden flag and flew it from the front of our house, and we did that. <laughs> we did that for the next the next several years until it was almost in tatters from the weather. So, so I just wanted you to know that. Um, <clears throat> So we came awfully close. I did not read the entire uh, uh, bill that would have gone through the Senate if, if Senator McCain had not voted against at that time. Um, but to, to repeal and replace is essential. And the reason is there were so many things that didn't make sense. And the first thing is they wanted to have more people or hopefully eventually everybody have some sort of coverage, but they never addressed the heart of the problem, which was the skyrocketing costs. So the skyrocketing costs are a combination of many ills, many problems. Um, One of them, which the president has already been working on to some degree, and I feel very strongly, we need to have better transparency on what's being charged and what's a reasonable cost. Because most of us know on our insurance uh, explanation of benefits that you'll have this big cost that's charged by whoever the provider is, and then there'll be this pretty pretty large write-down of like what's reasonable and customary, and then suddenly you'll have what the insurance company paid. It'll be substantially less, and maybe you're left with a small copayment, sometimes a bigger copayment, maybe nothing. That's, that's ridiculous. That's like saying, okay, we're going to make the biggest budget possible and ask for the moon, and we hope we'll get something less, but we really don't need all that money. That's a waste of everybody's time. We should have a system where people are charging what they actually need to charge in order to make a decent living. (laughs) And if we could just start with that and then tort reform, I've already talked about, it is still, there's no question because I was actually um, biology, uh, bachelor's science in biology undergrad at Duke. And I, um, and I did work in the hospital and I'm pretty closely aligned with a lot of folks in the medical field. And it is um, absolutely absurd now what doctors at all levels um, have to carry in terms of their, insurance. And, and so we desperately need that. So that's two areas. And then another big one is we really need to address this issue of why can't insurance companies compete across state lines? It's absolutely absurd that every single, and I don't know if Blue Cross would hate this, but every single state has their own Blue Cross Blue Shield. There's got to be a tremendous amount of waste and redundancy. And then there's a lot of smaller companies that really can't compete because they'd have to set up a separate administration in every state. So that's another thing we need desperately to bring costs down. If we address costs, a lot of the other things would be much easier to handle. And I definitely think it needs to be a private sector solution, absolutely not anything to do with universal or one payer. 
you know, I love to see government come out of my insurance. Every time you go to the doctor, it's the HIPAA form, it's this form, it's that form. Uh, physical therapy, you have to be reevaluated every so often. And, you know, are you happy? You know, do you feel like all this other stuff? It's like, listen, just get out of my life. I don't want government interfering. But government regulations mandate so many things have to be attended to. And the staff of these medical facilities lose hours of their day just complying with these regulations. Absolutely. That's the same thing that happened with small businesses and even bigger businesses. One of the things that President Trump really rolled back when it came to starting a business or or growing a business. But uh, one more comment. The very idea that every single one of the Democratic candidates are talking about, you know, a type of a Medicare for all kind of scenario have they not looked at how bad the finances are for Medicare? I mean, my goodness, that's like saying, okay, we've got this huge behemoth that is on its way to bankruptcy, and what we want to do is we want to make it a whole bunch bigger and therefore a whole bunch quicker before we go bankrupt with it. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense at all. It's illogical on all levels. Well, there's one question we always ask all the candidates. When you are elected, what is the first agency you would work to shut down? <laughs> Let me think about that for a minute. <clears throat> there's so many. Actually, one of, the, one of the first things I would like to there's there's a lot of things, but I, I since I'm going to go with the first, I'm going to talk about something that I to, totally under, or understand pretty darn well, and that is um, we need to get the GSEs, the government-sponsored entities, which are agencies, Fannie and Freddie. They need to be privatized. They need to be separate. Um, it is absolutely absurd that we continue 11 years after 2008, and they really are a big part, a huge part of what brought us down in 2008. They need to be spun off completely with no government involvement. And I'm, still, I'm appalled that that has not happened. And frankly, one of the reasons why I remember very clearly in 2008 leading up to the whole d- disaster, I remember very clearly when um, – Actually, President Bush was trying to have Congress look at privatizing Fannie and Freddie. And Maxine Waters, the head of the Financial Services Committee, the chairman, said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, obviously it was broken, and it fell apart, and it brought down a lot of things. So I think that, that even though that's just what it's GSE, it's not a regular agency, I would like to see that privatized and separated off completely. Well, you've got a compliment in the chat room from uh, one of our listeners. Holger said that he would vote for you if he didn't live in the Communist Republic of Minnesota. <laughs> so, so I'm going to tell Holger, go to your website, which is your name, Kathy Landing, L-A-N-D-I-N-G, KathyLanding.com, and he can probably donate uh, to your your campaign. We are allowed to do that, of course, state lines. Maybe not take our medical with us, but we can help candidates we like and support. Oh, that would be terrific. Thank you so much. And isn't the fellow um, that's in Ilian Omar's district um, our pillow man? Isn't he thinking about running? It seems like he'd be a great, if someone self-starter, self-made like that, would be a great person to go up against uh, uh, Congresswoman Elmar, Omar. <laughs> I, I know there's two Republicans out there. One is a retired NYPD cop. Yay, my fellow brother in blue. <laughs> and uh, the other is a uh, uh, a woman that is a Republican activist out there. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's, I know two are entering the race. I don't know if there's others. I do know there's also a 
radio host out of New Jersey that wants to move to the district so he could run, uh, happens to be Hispanic. <laughs> so we'll see. We may get someone to unseat Ilya Omar. Uh, there's a lot of New Yorkers pissed off with her. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, oh, good luck, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck and enjoy the barbecue over at Sun City there. Well, thank you. And Annie, if I could also just mention, I'm also on social media, um, Kathy Landing SE1. And uh, so I have Instagram, Facebook. If people could take a look. We're actually updating the Facebook about every couple days with very relevant commentary as well as events and things. And if you can watch, we're going to start back up now that Congress is back in session. We have a graphic of uh, Congressman Cunningham's uh, report card. And he does, in fact, get an S. 88% voting with Maxine Waters, 83% with AOC. That's not low country over party. We need to replace him. Thank you. Thank you. And I have a slogan for you. Beer Can Joe has got to go. <laughs> I'll remember that. <laughs> Thank you. Good luck, Kathy. And be safe out there. Okay, thanks. We'll right. see you Monday. <laughs> Bye-bye. God bless. All right. Kathy Landing, uh, she, uh, running for South Carolina District 1. Check out her website, kathylanding.com. You know, it, it's it's too funny. She mentions AOC. There is a new book coming out um, October 1st. <laughs> this is going to be a book that keeps on giving, a gift that keeps on giving. Here is the title of the new book. It's The ABCs of AOC. And it's written by, guess what, a liberal who is going to paint AOC in this wonderful light. Now, here's a description on Amazon. Amazon has this, uh, let me see, get my reading glasses here. Um, The ABCs of AOC is an inspiring, educational, and giftable book about the representative taking Congress and the media by storm. Oh, this is just going to be too, too funny. The empowering and informative book is the perfect conversation starter for young people interested in government and activism and the ultimate gift for anyone who wants to learn more about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. From advocate to feminist, grassroots to queens, and revolutionary to zest, the ABCs of AOC introduces readers to values, places, and issues that relate to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's life and platform. A clear and engaging explanation of each term is paired with a stunning, stunning contemporary illustration that will delight readers. This is an alphabet book like no other. Oh, good Lord, I am starting to get ready far. I'm pretty sure they're going to probably get that book into the schools to, you know, help um, propagandize our children and vaccinate them. I have no doubt. And I think this woman <laughs> has some presidential aspirations. Oh, man. Well, we've got our next guest in on the line. It's always fun to have her, a fellow New Yorker. Forget about it. Let's welcome back to the show Judge Janine Pirro. Good afternoon, Judge. How are you today? Hi. How are you? I am doing fine. 
I was been a tough week because we were doing 9-11 and the start of the show, we started off the dedication to a fellow NYPD officer, Detective um, Alvarez, who passed away this year. So it's yeah. like, it's been yeah. a tough week, but you have a great new book that just came out just, I think about a week or so ago called Radicals, Resistance, and Revenge, The Left Plot to Remake America. And I love your books. I really, really adore them Thank because you. when I read them, <laughs> I hear your voice. You write as mm-hmm. you speak and shoot straight from the hip. Yeah. Well, you know, the truth is that, you know, they say that if you don't hear a person's voice in a book that they've written, then they haven't written the book. <laughs> So I thank you for that. And, you know, this this book was a work of, uh, of passion. It's a follow-up to Liars, Leakers, and Liberals, which was about the corruption at the uh, upper echelon of the FBI, which uh, it looks like they're going to start prosecuting. And, uh, you know, when I stepped back and I looked at the country, I said, you know what? There is a plot. In addition to all the things that happened at the FBI, there is a plot to remake America to their liking. So that if you're on the right, free speech doesn't apply to you. You know, they'll, they'll protest and riot at the universities. They'll take you off to Twitter and Facebook if you quote the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, uh, and then they'll send in Antifa to be on you. And uh, the police will stand down as they do so. Uh, they want to upend uh, a, a roaring economy with capitalism and replace it with a disastrous socialism. So there was a lot to write about, I must tell you. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because as I was reading it, I'm thinking back to when you were last on the show, and I asked you this question. Why haven't they gone after the FISA warrants and any investigations after that as fruit of the poisonous tree? And lo and behold, Judge, what has happened with the FISA warrants? Well, we're waiting for that, and I think that that's what Bill Barr is working on now. You know, now that the uh, the DOJ uh, is is refusing uh, uh, Andrew McCabe's request that he not be prosecuted, the truth is that we're going to start, I think, seeing the beginning of a lot of criminal cases. Uh, you've got him, and now, as I write in the book, Radicals and Resistance are going to start jumping ship. Each one of them is going to start pointing the finger of guilt at the other, which is what happens in any conspiracy when they start to realize that it's falling apart. So with McCabe and the indictment uh, that apparently is forthcoming, and uh, the fact that McCabe is blaming Comey, Comey is, uh, uh, is blaming Brennan, and Rosenstein is blaming Comey. And, you know, I think that with the conversation that they had with Christopher Steele, uh, which is the last piece of the puzzle, I believe, I think you're really going to start seeing a lot of indictments coming down the pike. And it took a long time. But you know what? You've got a real prosecutor in Bill Barr. You didn't have one in, uh, in Jeff Sessions, unfortunately. Well, there's a a question in the chat room. I'm going to expand it just a little bit because you address this in the book. Uh, He wants to know who is behind the plot, which means Holger, you're going to have to buy the book. It's up on Amazon. There's a link on the show page. Just click on the title of the book, Radicals, Resistance, and Revenge. It'll take you to Amazon so you can get the book, Holger. And you can download it in Kindle. So he wants to know who is the mastermind. Is there any one person or is it a whole cabal? Well, you know, I I can't say yet because I don't have all the facts, but what I can tell you is something that is as coordinated with this, 
where you saw it in the emails and text messages between Strzok and Page, you know, uh, where, you know, will let's try to meet a judge under cover of a dinner party. And then the next thing is, you know, POTUS wants to be advised of everything we're doing. Uh, you realize that there's a lot going on here. And let, and let me just say that in my book, the first chapter, I talk about the fact that I doubt something like this would have happened without the White House knowing about it. Do I, do I have facts to back that up? No, the only fact that I have to back it up is that any counterintelligence investigation, the White House would have to be informed of it. And in truth, uh, we know that Barack Obama hated Donald Trump. He hated him the way he campaigned, the way he talked about him. This man will never be president. And it's not like he was an opponent. It was his legacy that was going to be affected, and he didn't want his legacy uh, to be in any way affected by Donald Trump. And uh, so I'll leave it up to the reader, but there's a lot in there with 30 pages of footnotes because from law review, you learn how to do footnotes even though you hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny because as I was reading your book, your your agent sent me the uh, the press copy, the confidential copy, so I was able to yeah. put my notes all over it. Um, oh, but wow. I wrote down here, I says, it seems it seems that every time you come out with a new book or something like this, the left tries to boycott, get your advertisers to run away. They try these boycotts and try to yeah. get you canceled. And so it's, it's the plot from the left is not just against Trump. It's against just basically any conservative willing to speak out. Well, you know, if you, if you commit the crime of supporting the president of the United States, then you are deplorable, you are a racist, you are an Islamophobe, you are all the things that they call us, and then you're not entitled to your First Amendment free speech. And that is the most frightening of all. And, you know, um, I think it was, uh, and I've got something in my book about Dennis Prager, I think he had one of the uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, you know, that you shall not murder or something like that. Uh, and they took him off, and they said, no, we can't have you on. And then someone had told me today that they had something on from the uh, uh, the, the amendments, the Constitution, and they took that off of Twitter or Facebook. Look, there is a movement afoot to change everything about America. And you know what? We've got an economy soaring, more African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, women, you know, employed than ever before in the history of our country. This is all good. And as much as they hate Donald Trump, they cannot take that away from him. They just can't. We've got a military that's strong again when Barack Obama wanted it at pre-World War II levels. Uh, you know, and, and I think that the engagement that Donald Trump is involved with around the world will benefit us. NATO was taking advantage of us. Not anymore. So um, they lost power. And with that power came resistance and revenge, revenge because they couldn't drag Hillary Clinton across the presidential finish line, and revenge because they wanted to win and they wanted all of the power. And I don't know if you remember, but Brett Kavanaugh, on that seminal moment when Lindsey Graham, uh, the senator, says, all you want is power and I hope you never get it. When they tried to accuse him of being a gang rapist, a nominee to the Supreme Court, is someone who's as close to an altar boy as anyone I've seen in an adult male, and they say he's not entitled to the presumption of innocence, a United States senator who says all women 
to be believed that men should just shut up, that Maisie Hirono from Hawaii. I mean, we can't upend all of this and expect America to survive. It just won't. Well, it's funny you mentioned Lindsey Graham because he is my senator, and I've, I've actually gone ah. nose-to-nose with him. And if you, you know him, he's not very tall, so I'm not tall, so <laughs> I go nose-to-nose. I was literally what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, this is my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Go, go ahead, Curtis. Hi, Curtis. How are you? Just fine. I'm, I'm a fan of yours. I, I watch you every day almost <laughs> on Fox News. Thank you. But, uh, Thank you. My question is this. The average cop on the beat, you know, he runs into a crook or whatever, and that crook gets thrown the book at him. In other words, they charge him with several things. That way, if some of the charges are dropped, they at least have something on the guy. But when it comes to people like Comey and Hillary, it seems as though, you know, they could be charged with something, but they, they get a pass. And it's almost as though, well, down the road, we will catch them on something bigger. How can they be so certain that they they can get something on them later? Well, you know, I don't know that they've ever said that about uh, Hillary Clinton. But what I do know is that based upon what I saw today uh, and yesterday, with the Department of Justice refusing the appeal of Andrew McCabe, uh, to not be indicted. I think this is just the beginning of what's to come. I think that the biggest corruption, to be honest with you, is with the uh, FBI and the FISA court. Uh, I doubt Hillary Clinton is going to get any, you know, you could thank Jeff Sessions for that. Uh, you know, she shouldn't. The foundation was nothing more than a uh, an organized criminal enterprise and a pay-to-play uh, so that she could make money, so she could run for president. And Lo and behold, when she's not president, the, the the foundation is shut down. No more money coming in. Gee, what a shock. What do you think it was all about? So uh, that that breaks my heart because, you know, I've been in law enforcement, a, a prosecutor and a judge for 30 years, and I hate seeing it. I absolutely hate seeing that happen because then I lose faith in everything that I did because I'm a believer. I believe in the system. You know, I believe that Lady Justice is blindfolded, but lately, and I'm going to talk about this in my open tomorrow night, lately I've been very disturbed and and worried that, you know, did I spend 30 years in a system that's rigged? Because I didn't run my office or my courtroom that way, and yet they seem to do that at the highest levels of government, and it's got to stop. It just does, and if there's no charges, then I will be one one of the people out there you know, uh, you know, protesting and being disgusted with the level of uh, justice in this country. Or injustice. It to be lopsided. But as you mentioned the show up on Fox News, which is on Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So get Fox, if whatever your cable service is, your satellite service, tune into Fox 9 o'clock on Saturday nights to the judge. Um, Thank you. There's, yeah, I watch on <laughs> YouTube, too. Oh, you do? (laughs) (laughs) There she gets a little more unfiltered. (laughs) But, you know, they've been going after Trump so hard, the left, that they've been destroying people's lives left and right. They don't care who they hurt in their effort to climb over and get to Trump, do they? Uh, No, they don't. And, you know, I... 
they don't care if it's a family member. They don't care if it's someone who works for him. Uh, if it's a three-star general, you know, I find the irony is is, is stunning with Andrew McCabe uh, about to be indicted for uh, lying, not just to the FBI, but to the inspector general's investigators, when what they did was they went in and tried to trick Michael Flynn, and, and, and Jim Comey makes a joke about it. He says, hey, there was so much chaos going on, it would never have happened in the uh, Obama or the Bush years. So I figured, let's just let the guys go in and talk to Flynn. You know, they didn't uh, uh, they didn't consider all the protocol. You know, where the White House counsel gets involved and a lawyer. They tell him he doesn't need a lawyer. I mean, and then the irony is, as as the time goes on, the cave is uh, who was involved in that uh, prosecution of of Michael Flynn, a 30 year general. Um, is going to go down with that same charge. So, you know, maybe maybe karma is out there, but I think I like to think it's more Lady Justice delivering justice totally blindfolded without fear or favor to who she's delivering that justice to. Now, what I would love to see, you know, something done because you've got the charges against Roger Stone. You've got SWAT teams showing up at his door. CNN camping out there so they can take pictures. Jerome Corsi, uh, they're trying to get him to lie so they can get stuff on Trump and Roger Stone. You mentioned Flynn, George Papadopoulos, who actually went to prison. Uh, so yep. we've got charges of perjury and false imprisonment all coming from this bogus investigations they have on him and how many millions of dollars, how many warrants have been spent on just trying to get Trump? Well, I think there are 500 search warrants. I think there are 2,600 subpoenas. I think they've been in 30 countries. uh, And I think that this group fully expected that Bob Mueller would follow through and give them the collusion uh, as basically a cover for what they did. And it didn't happen. They didn't have the goods. And by the way, they didn't do anybody any favors. You have to have evidence in order to do that. And they just didn't have it. And I think that uh, as we go forward, we're going to see that uh, there was an effort to conduct a bloodless coup. And unless there is uh, a prosecution, then they've done nothing but create the blueprint for the next team to come in and do precisely the same thing. It, this is not what they do in the United States of America. Jim Comey and his gang of conspirators have smeared the reputation of that stellar, esteemed agency. And, you know, as a prosecutor, a judge, and a DA for 30 years, I worked with the FBI. I worked, in fact, with James Comey. I was the DA when, when he was the U.S. attorney. Uh, our offices were right next to each other. And this guy is a very bright guy. He knows exactly what he's doing. And when he stood there in the place of the attorney general and said no reasonable prosecutor would ever prosecute Hillary Clinton, I said to myself, Janine, this guy has gone to the dark side because he knows better. And the shame of it is that there are fantastic men and women in the FBI who had to sit there and listen while all this corruption was going on. And that's the truth. That is the absolute truth. We have another question from Holger in the uh, chat room, because you are friends with uh, President Trump. You've known him for quite a while. So I'm sure there's a lot of great things you can say about him. But he wants to know, if there is, what criticism do you have uh, about Donald? 
Well, I told them not to tweet so much. Uh, but, you know, you're right. I mean, I do know the man. I've walked down the street with him. I've known him for almost 30 years. Uh, my then-husband represented him. We used to fly with him on weekends to Mar-a-Lago with our kids when our kids were little. And what you've got is a guy who is he is gracious to everyone. Um, you know, you walk down the street, a hard hat, a cop, anybody would take the time to speak with them. You go to a restaurant with him. He goes into the kitchen. He thanks everyone. You know, he takes care of them in the kitchen. I mean, this guy is a very generous guy, and he is a very good man. And I'm tired of all of these people ranting and raving about who he is. I know who he is, and I've spent time with him. And he is nothing like the caricature they want to make him. But then again, the left has proved themselves to be absolutely out of their minds with this Russia collusion delusion, which they took us on for two years. And if there's one person that we can blame for that, one person, it's Jim Comey. He is the one who leaked information to get a special counsel so that they could start an investigation. And the investigator came up with nothing. You can thank Jim Comey for fracturing this nation. I will never forgive him for that. Not that he cares what I say or do, but that was unforgivable you know the nation has become divided matter of fact they've been trying to impeach him god knows what 10 15 times already and every time he does something good and this is something else you addressed in the book it it doesn't matter if he's getting the tariffs on china making china bad to us it doesn't matter that they got the rocket man to start to back down no matter what good he does the news story that comes up is they're closing in yeah, <laughs> you read that chapter, huh? Yep, every minute they're closing in. It's coming. They're closing in. They're going to get them. They're going to get them. This is Newsweek, the New York Times, Vanity Fair. I mean, and, and they're all, you know, they should be embarrassed. I can't believe that they're willing to go as far as they've gone in, in trying to convince the media and the American people that this guy is colluding with Russia, that Russia had its finger on the scale. The only people who had their finger on the skills were, were the people in the FBI and Jim Comey and his gang. It, it's really disgusting what they did. It, it is absolutely unforgivable and prosecutable, so I, find, I might add. Well, I find amusing is that now Congress is putting down rules of impeachment. They're passing that. Uh, and then it follows up with an article that I thought you would find really, really funny that was up on Breitbart News. That there was even Bright had promoted a rally in Washington D.C. this past Monday. It was an impeach Donald Trump protest down in D.C. And guess yeah. how many people showed up at this this rally? How many do how you many? think showed up at this actual rally? Zero. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> really? I love it. Well, maybe people aren't into it. You know, they've got us convinced that you know he is he's the devil incarnate, and it is it's just it's. it's it's pathetic, and uh, it's gamesmanship, and the American people see through the gamesmanship, and they've had enough of it. They really have. I mean, we want to know about the economy. We want to know that our kids are going to live in a safe world. We want to make sure that everything is fair and on the level and nobody gets better treatment, uh, and, you know, he, they're doing whatever they can to prevent Americans from getting what they need to live, a, a you know, a peaceful a prosperous life, and that's just who they are, and it's it's the same commentary. It really is. So anyway, well, again, I got to get going. Another... I know I have another radio show to do. 
but I appreciate well, being on your show. Thing. Well, one last thing, because a friend of yours wanted to give a shout out, Chris Cox. Chris Cox, who's running for South Carolina District 1, Mark Sanford's old seat, uh, you said to give you a shout out. He's with Bikers for Trump. He gave you a ride around D.C.? Uh, yeah, he gave me a ride a couple years ago. And, in fact, he's going to be on my show Saturday night. He was in Israel this week. So uh, I think Chris is a great guy, and uh, I'm looking forward to interviewing him and letting him talk to uh, you know my audience because I think he's got a lot to say. So thanks so much for well, having me on. Take, take care. Oh, my pleasure. Pure. Uh, check out her book is Radicals, Resistance, and Revenge up on Amazon. Check it out. There's a link to the in the show page. And I'm sorry, Holger, I couldn't get to that last question. But, again, she addresses it in the book. So cut back on what you're paying on your Obamacare and get her book. <laughs> oh, man. And matter of fact, uh, Chris Cox, Curtis, is going to be at my tea party, I think, possibly next month. Uh, he's running for the seat that Kathy Landing is also running. So they're going to be uh, primarying off of each other. So it's going to be interesting here. Okay. It's going to get interesting. Okay. Oh, man. Uh, she is so much fun. <laughs> Forget about it. She's so <laughs> And like I said, yeah, uh, matter of when fact, they... When Comey, you know, read all the indiscretions of um, Hillary Clinton that day, I was certain he was going to, you know, say she's going to jail. She's being charged. But then he went to kind of like exonerator saying no no prosecutor would ever charge, you know, her for these indiscretions. And I'm like, what? It's like these guys are always going to pass, and, and people are getting tired of, you know, this two-tier justice system. Yeah, it is. And that's something that Holger was asking in the chat room that he wanted me to ask her, and I didn't get a chance to because she does have another interview to do, why the DOJ still operates like it's run by Eric Holder. And, you know, you look at it. You know, you got Barr trying to do the investigation, but uh, we have a DOJ that is still mired in the swamp. And this is I this is my one criticism of Trump. As soon as he got into office, he should have cleaned house from top to bottom. And so what? You're going to have you know offices that would have no appointment in there until Congress, you know, the Senate uh, approves them. So what? It's it would have been far better than what we're stuck with right now. And yeah, it is about protecting big government. Holger is 100 percent right. It's Big Brother, dude. Is what Holger's writing to you, Curtis. Curtis is not yeah. in the chat room tonight because he's actually in a rest stop. Uh, where'd you say you were down in Virginia? You made it into Virginia? Uh, I would say like 20 miles north of um, uh, Richmond, Virginia. I know exactly actually, where you're I'm at. Going, I'm going to Hampton after this because I'm going to stop and see a relative I haven't seen in decades. So I'm going to make a stop in Hampton after the show, and then I'll get some rest and then head back down to Florida. Good. Absolutely good. Um, Our next guest, uh, Dr. Bruce Hartman, should be calling in shortly. I'm trying to remember. Oh, I've got to call him. Ah, oh, good going, Ann. So, uh, Curtis, go on and talk while I'm going to put myself into the screening room and – I'll bring Dr. Hartman in. So take it over. over. 
Go on. Well, <laughs> I just wanted to remind everybody to be careful today. I'm not superstitious, but uh, it is Friday the 13th. So, you know, knock on wood. But like I said, I'm not superstitious. <laughs> but anyway, I do wish the best of luck to the Democrats because they're going to need it um, in 2020. Um, from what I've listened to, the last couple of debates, they are way out there. And sadly, as Rush and Hannity and Mark Levin and Michael Savage all say, you know, there's some people who actually believe in um, everything these candidates are for. You know, socialism um, is it's, it's incompatible with our free market system, you know, capitalism, and um, the principles um, this country was founded on. And it just its amazed me that these folks have gotten to a point where they are quite vocal about it, you know. There was a time when you wouldn't even admit that you had socialist leanings um, back in the Oh, 40s true, 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 true. 30s, yeah, you, know, you, you would, would lose your job. Oh, yeah. But now they're so emboldened. And I think the biggest socialist was um, Barack Obama. Well, Curtis, we're going to be talking about this and other items. We've got our next guest. Our next victim is with us, Dr. Bruce Hartman, returning to the show. He's got a brand-new book out called Your Faith Has Made You Well. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Hartman. How are you today? I'm doing terrific. And how are you and Curtis doing today, Annie? But just fine. I'm ducky. I'm glad to have you. Absolutely ducky. Um, the book that I am, I'm about halfway through it. I got to tell you, when I was reading the very first intro part of it, you had me in tears because Ooh. you brought back to me so many things that I have gone through, uh, and you explained why you wrote the book that you did. Um, I'm sorry, my husband just handed something to me, distracted me. Uh, But as I'm going through it, I'm relating personally to so many things that you've written in the book. And uh, I recently got a newsletter in from my uh, diocese. And what this person wrote inside the newsletter was something also you addressed in the book. It is a powerful, powerful book, and thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad that it's helping uh, it's something that we have lost, you know, over the decades for some reason with the sexual re- revolution of the 60s. And so people have lost their faith. And your book is a basically a blueprint to come back to it and to lead a more um, happy life. Well, that was the, uh, you know, that was the intent, Annie, too. Uh, if you notice the book is this, well, I know you notice that the book is divided into two parts. One is explaining how to develop faith, what faith is, and how Jesus helps us. That's the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book is a result of a whole bunch of interviews that I did with folks because I was as much curious um, in terms of how people understood faith, but also how they put it into practice. And I've, I've always found that when I can have a real life story or something that has happened to somebody else and connect it to a Bible verse, that it gets that feeling of connection in people's lives. And, 
in, in, in the book, I try to get to as many examples to the various, what I call seasons of our faith, because we all have a different faith at different times in our life. So, um, you know, doing that was really, for me, it was enlightening. It was reassuring that it was on the right track. Um, and the thing that the thing that kind of kicked it all off was <clears throat> Jesus said to various individuals in the Gospels eight times, which is a bit that's a very large number for a repetitive comment by Jesus. Eight times Jesus said, "Your faith has made you well." So as I started to think about that, I think about my some of my friends who they treat Jesus as a genie. You know, they get in trouble. He call on Jesus and ask ask him for help. But really what faith is, is having a lifelong conversation with Jesus. And that's what I try to say in the book. And that's really what your faith has made you well. It, it, it's, it's a way to have a mutual relationship like you would with a best friend. Now, you would never call it, just call your best friend when things are tough, because pretty soon they wouldn't be your best friend anymore. It's when you share their joys and your joys with each other as well as the difficult times in life. That, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, one of the things you were talking about in your book, um, when you were saying handing yourself over to Jesus, uh, about how prayer can also heal. And I, I know that personally. I, you know, I've seen it in my right. own life. Uh, where I walked out of uh, the intensive care and I was told that by the time mm-hmm. I came back that evening, my husband may not be with us. And I remember wow. crying all the way home from the hospital because uh, I had to come feed the cats. can't ignore the cats. And okay. I, was, was, I was prostate on the floor in my bedroom praying. And I kept on thinking to myself, what am I going to do? And praying to God. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I'm asking him something selfish. Instead, I changed my prayer. And I said, whatever your will is, I will accept. And at that moment, my husband later told me, at that very moment I did that, he said he felt a presence. He felt that everything was going to be all right. It was a long way back on recovery. But the moment I changed my prayer, I felt myself change. And right. I'm starting to cry. But I have a friend of mine that just recently passed away, and I was talking to her husband. He had a very similar situation. Um, and he said, I had to make a decision, but he had enough faith to know that everything was going to be all right. She did pass. But he also felt that change. And it it Mm. does happen. It's not just something that you talk about in the Bible and it no longer happens. It still happens today. And this is what you address. Yeah, and your your testimony is is powerful. And when I talk to, I guess, 24 people or so, um, I, I heard similar stories. And that's what I was trying to capture in the book is this, feeling of presence that you talk about. It is real. And so much of what we hear from um, other folks, you've mentioned this earlier about 
we seem to have lost our way as Christians. And, th- and that's true, but there are too many of these stories to make it not true that you know Christ is still with us. He's with us every day. Um, I, a, a couple of stories that happened after that are very similar to yours, a couple of stories that happened after I had written the book and it was in the form of publishing with, was a man who had a stroke. He remembers lying there in coma and saying to himself, I can't be like this for my wife because this is too much of a burden on, on him, on her. And he was very desperate that she not be burdened by him and said the same thing that you said, not my will, but yours. Well, he did wake up from the coma in about an, another hour. And at that moment, as he was arising, he felt this grace or this presence that we talked about. And he said, you know, for the first time in my life, I understood what unmerited grace was. And for him, this was very powerful. And his wife felt it just about the same time um, that he did. So when he asked me later on, he said, you know, why did God save me? What, What did I do? And I said, I don't think you did anything other than just speak from your heart for the benefit of your wife. And that's probably the prayer that rescued you from the stroke. So similar to you. I was going to say the the article I read in the newsletter along this very same lines, you know, had a baby that was born with a lot of defects to the point where it was on life support and the doctors told him there's nothing further to be done. And he had to make the decision to pull the plug. And when he pulled the plug, they waited for this baby to pass away. And the opposite mm. happened. Suddenly, all the things that were wrong with this child and the future it faced with different defects and learning disabilities disappeared because he had so much faith at, at that moment. This little baby, now three years later, is happy. And in church, everyone knows that child's there. Uh, because it, I, it's very vocal. So, you know, it, we hear stories, and this is something that just happened. So we hear them over right. and over again. And we have to have, we have to be willing to finally make that final release. I think there's, there's no other better word to release ourselves to something better than, and greater than ourselves. And I think this is what is missing in today's society. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, there's, there's a Greek term for what you're talking about. It's called kenosis. I don't know if, if you've heard that word, but it's an emptying of yourself. And it's, it's an important word because to, to really be with God, you have to remove your, yourself, your will, and just listen to God at that point in time. And one of the things I say in the book uh, frequently is that the dialogue has to be continuous. And when it is continuous, life almost becomes amusing because you know you thought or prayed something. And then maybe that day or maybe the, within the next week, you'll see God's response. It's always so unusual that, and better than what you had hoped for. And the reason for that is it's so personal, so intimate. You know that that was God talking to you. But that comes from a long history of having conversations with God or prayer. Well, we got a question in the chat room from our friend Holger. 
And I I completely agree with what he's he's asking, because we see faith under attack, our Judeo and Christian beliefs and our Judeo Christian systems and laws are under constant attack. And how dare you mention God in a public forum? How dare you want to bring a Bible to school? Uh, we had a uh, one person, uh, Drew Brees, was attacked because he supported bring your Bible to school day. So he's asking that he feels he's being persecuted in this country because he is a Christian. So he says, does Jesus mind if I fight the persecution or should I be turning the other cheek? (laughs) Well, you should always, I mean, one of the misconceptions about Jesus was he never got mad, but he did. Uh, Jesus could be very emotional. We had, we had the turning of the tables uh, the, t- the time that uh, one of his good friends died, he started to cry. J- Jesus exhibited human emotions. Turning the cheek in praying for your enemies is, is always a good thing to do, but it doesn't mean you can't stand up. I had a friend of mine this past Christmas said, you, I said Merry Christmas to somebody, and they, she pulled me aside and said, you, you can't say Merry Christmas. <laughs> Why not? And she didn't really have a good answer. I mean, you shouldn't say Merry Christmas um, if you know it's going to uh, intentionally offend somebody. But why can't we say Merry Christmas? And you know, Drew Brees recently is bringing your Bible to school movement, which I think is just terrific. It's the number one selling book over its lifetime. And in the last 50 years, so this is an amazing number, 4 billion Bibles have been sold through bookstores and online. 4 billion. If you took the next 20 books in terms of bestsellers, you wouldn't hit that number. That's how important this is to people. So I think it, it's important that we, we expose our children to the Bible. Second, the second thing we should remember, it's, it's interesting that those that persecute us, and they do, are the minority. 90% of people believe in the compelling force of God. 70% of us are Christians or professed Christians. And of the professed Christians, 67% pray at least weekly. So it's a, it's a staggering number. And in this age of identity politics, I would think we were the number one identity. So I would definitely fight back. Uh, there's plenty that will support. And, you know, pushback. There's nothing wrong with the Bible. It's certainly not unwholesome. And it's a great it's a great. Uh, it's a great lesson in life almost every time you pick up the Bible and read a verse. Well, you know, it's funny because people assume that the New Testament tells us that we don't defend ourselves, but that's not true. At the time that Christ walked the earth, some of his disciples walked with swords to guard against robbers and persecution. Remember in the garden, one took the sword to cut off his soldier's ear. But there's a difference between self-preservation and defense and then in a, in a deliberate malicious attack. Right. And similar to what Jesus, when Jesus is t- saying, Tur- turn the other cheek, I think we all miss, and myself included, my wife reminds me of this all the time. Some of it is we get personally offended. And it's really the being personally offended that Jesus is trying to get at. Um, you know, it's, it's learning to listen to the other person's point of view. That's what turning the cheek means. Is just don't think about what you want. Think about what the other person wants. 
but it doesn't mean that you have to agree with what they want, particularly if it's not moral or ethical or right. Exactly, exactly. And again, we have the gun issue coming up now, and it's like, oh, you only need guns for hunting. No. Our founding fathers knew very, very well we needed to defend ourselves, not just from criminals, but from an overreaching government. So, yes, we do need to defend. So if we need to defend our faith, we should do it faithfully, but not, don't be a lamb. Don't be a, a sheep. No, certainly not. You know, as as Christians, we also have an expectation to, you know, be the kindest person in the room. We're, we always have that expectation of being the most generous person in the room. But it doesn't mean we have to be the most passive in the room. And there is a way um, – I have a really good friend of mine. He was in my previous book, Dwayne Bristetta. He, he said this, there's always 14 ways to, to, to argue. Only one of them involves yelling. So his point was, <laughs> there's lots of ways. Right? There's lots of, and Dwayne, a wonderful guy, lots of ways to get your point across without losing your temper. And when we do get angry, it's it's losing our temper. Jesus wants us under control, in control, and that was certainly the Apostle Paul preaches about this quite a bit in uh, his um, 14 books. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's another thing that's going on. We're, our faith is being attacked. Our moral values are under attack. When you have something as stupid as, let me pull this person's information out. A Swedish behavioral scientist, Magnus Sundreland, <laughs> says a means of combating climate change is cannibalism. If that's not putting our faith under attack, I don't know what is. I, I wrote next to it, Shades of Soylent Green. Remember the movie Soylent yes. Green? Yes, I do. When I, I, when I read the article, and I had the exact same thought. I said, so at what point when they decide they're going to cannibalize, do they start farming and harvesting humans? Uh, it was, I, I think it was all the things I've read in the last 50 years, it was the mo- most bizarre conversation. And instead of printing an article like that, one of, one of these these crazy sites prints something about somebody who's done something great, somebody who's helped the world, and that's that's really what people want. We're getting exhausted from listening to these um, crazy articles and reading them. You know, you watch the way they dehumanize us, and this is something that the left and the secular world wants. They dehumanize us. We're no longer individuals. We're units. Um, abortion was meant so that, you know, you don't go into a back room and have a coat hanger and so forth. No, no, it's to be safe, but only to save the life of the mother or in cases of rape and incest. There's always an excuse to open the door. Now the foot is in the door and you have a state like New York that allows late-term abortion for any any excuse. So we've dehumanized that that zygote in the womb is not a human being any longer. It is a thing. And when we push back with things like a heartbeat bill, we're the bad guys. We're, the woman has a right to choose, but that preborn child has no right whatsoever. So now they dehumanize us. 
And then they go in and with Hollywood and these games, you get points for killing people, running them over or whatever. For right. any reason, you get points. And now they have uh, uh, assisted suicide. Uh, so now mm-hmm. you're no longer – you're too old. You're no longer worth anything to society. And now you throw in cannibalism. They dehumanize us so that we have no value. So these things become possible. Yeah, it's it's almost right out of the the book 1984. Um, there was uh, uh, one of the presidential candidates, Mr. Goody Guy. I don't I never say his name right. Um, he recently came out and said that the Bible says that birth doesn't start until there's a breath. Well. That's not really true. Um, he never he did, never quoted a verse, and he, but he said there were lots of them. So I actually went to you know in our uh, computer Bibles now you can do searches. There's only one place where that exists, and that's at the creation of humankind when God breathed life into Adam. That's the only reference. But as we know, that was the start of creation, not had nothing to do with birth. However. There are 60 individual verses in the Bible about God being with us in the womb or talking about the womb. What that means is that the womb is sacred. And so when abortion people say there's not no support for it in the Bible, there's 60 different verses. Um, and so when you have people like Nancy Pelosi or Gutierrez or the Democrats just kind of hand-waving their understanding of the Bible. It's, it's bad for two reasons. One, because people actually believe that there are, there are statements in the Bible that say abortion's okay, which it doesn't. The second thing that's bad about this is I don't think it's a good idea to quote the Bible unless you get it right, because it is a sacred book. It's not like we're quoting uh, War and Peace. So it's a dangerous thing for the individual to do as well. You know, it, it's amazing because cannibalism is mentioned in the Bible, and this professor says it's, it's mentioned. Yeah, as a punishment. It was not meant as a good thing. It was meant as punishment. And then there was chastisements for if you did cannibalize. So in the Bible, it was against cannibalism, and yet everyone wants to go, well, this is the new way to cure climate change. I'm sorry. Come, I'll have a debate with you, and I will be wearing I Love CO2 pin. Well, there's, certainly climate control is, um, and what we do to our climate um, can be offensive to God. But the solution doesn't mean being offensive to human race or humankind. There are lots of things we can do. I, I recently, this past summer, I uh, hiked a large part of the Appalachian Trail, and I would carry a plastic bag with me every day. And any time I saw something that shouldn't have been there, like litter or cigarette butts, just put it in the plastic bag. You know, those are the things and actions that we should be doing. Um, I, I see that Starbucks is getting rid of their straws for the plastic cups. It's all these little steps that aren't inhumane, they make common sense, and we should be doing stuff like that. Um, but I think this climate change thing, people are 
they're looking for quick, easy answers like cannibalism as opposed to the hard work that you have to do to protect our to p- it, protect God's creation. Yeah, we are stewards of this world. That is without a doubt. But as I say, reduce CO2, then how are you going to have plants grow? Because they need CO2 in order to thrive. So the more we, we reduce CO2, the more we make the earth barren. And then right. if plants don't survive, then living creatures, as, as well as humans, will not survive. It is one of the dumbest things I ever heard. And I've got a friend, yeah, Gregory Wrightstone. He's been on the show many times. He's a geologist, wrote an excellent book, Inconvenient Facts, that explains the more CO2 we produce, the more crops we produce, the more we reduce starvation and poverty. So the opposite effect will occur if we increase CO2. So why not be good steward of the earth? You know something, Annie? The average person on the street that uh, didn't attend their chemistry class, they think they're talking about carbon monoxide. I've talked to quite a few people about this subject, and they're, they're thinking pollution. They're thinking carbon monoxide. And I think that's what the left wants them to think so they can advance this agenda, you know. People have to do their research and have to be on top of these things or they'll fall for whatever, you know, someone wants to lead them with. Yeah, that's And that's Very a good point. I, You know, if you say to people, is CO2 bad? I think Curtis is right. You, most people will say, yes, it is. But when you look at the green trees or um, – some of the jungles that we have, they desperately need CO2, and the plants produce the oxygen, as, as we all know, but they can't do it without CO2. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the propaganda. And then again, this climate change industry, thank you, Al Gore, is a eight, I think it's an $8 billion industry per year. So, of course, you follow the money and you get your answer. You know, as as our faith is under attack, another thing they are attacking us is gender identity. Oh, this is this is another one of my pet peeves and pet subjects. But then again, this is something the Bible addresses. And when asked, Christ said marriage is between one man, one woman. He answered that directly, and there's no ands ups or buts. And they identified only two genders, one male, one female. But now we've got what is it, up to 65 different flavors of the month? Wow. I knew it was up to eight. I didn't know it had grown to 65. That's a uh, amazing. It is. And yet here our faith, again, is under attack. But, oh, don't you understand, you know, these people, you know, they feel like they're trapped in a different body to the point where an English school required all students to switch to gender-neutral uniforms to accommodate transgender students. They locked their gates and called the police to keep out female students who continue to wear skirts. And this is at the Priory School in Lowe's, East Sussex. Can you believe this? It, it, yes. I, when you get on these, uh, I, I call them self-created issues. That's what people are doing here. They they take them way too far. They always take the 
pendulum and swing it all the way to the other side. There's, there is no reason why a girl cannot wear a dress to school, but we're willing to protect the rights of a single individual at the expense of the larger community. That is not a solution that's, that's ever going to work. It's only going to alienate a larger group of people. And, and for the person that's trying to make progress, when you alienate the larger group of people, you lose your power base over time. Well, actually, it's a distortion of individual rights as we should understand them. You know, I, I could say to someone that I find, you think that you're a female, you want to wear a female uniform to school, I'm not going to interfere with you. However, I identify as a, and I was born bio, biologically as a female, I will wear a female uniform. So I'm not going to hinder your right to choose what you wear. So please don't hinder my right. And this is where I think people get it wrong. They try with the one size fits all and it doesn't work. Never. No, it never works. I, but your point is good. I mean, they, to protect the right of one person, they'll distort the right of many. And, you know, that's the thing that I worry about. Like, we can't say Merry Christmas during we – we're supposed to, I guess, say Happy Holidays. But there's 70, 70% of this country is Christian. Why can't we say Merry Christmas? <laughs> Why can't we wear a crucifix? Why can't we carry a Bible? And why can't we no longer stand on a corner and preach? We're disturbing the peace now. So they've gone after our free speech, our First Amendment right to not have our freedom of religion challenged by government or prohibited by government because they'll use something else to inhibit it. Ken, um, Ken, um, Dr. Uh, good Lord, I forgot what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'll Harvey. answer to anything. You're <laughs> just don't make it late for dinner. Uh, your new book out is yeah. "Your Faith Has Made You Well: A Radical New Way to Create Peace and Hope." It's a beautiful, moving book. I love it. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to see if I can get my pastor to get a copy of this because uh, maybe we'll carry it in our our um, thrift store because they have a little section for books there. See if I can get him to carry it there. Thank you for all the hard work you do, and God bless you, sir. God bless you as well, Andy. Have a wonderful weekend. You too, Curtis. All right. Take I, care. Amen to that. All right. Uh, and there's Bye-bye. a link to get his book on our show page. Just click on the description where it says, Your Faith Has Made You Well, and I'll take you directly to his website where you can get his book. And I do believe our next guest is in on the line. If he will press number one on the keypad so I know which number is his, because I see several people in the studio, and I don't know which one is Ken Benway. So, Ken, press one on your dial pad, and I will be happy to bring you on and start the last segment of our show. There's so much to talk about with Ken because he's got a new project out there uh, with his um, Special Operations Speaks uh, website. So, Ken, please press one, and I'll be happy to bring you on. Otherwise, okay, I don't see Ken. All right, Ken, I hope you, uh, you're there. Oh, there we go. Here we go. Let's bring well, this, this isn't Ken, oh. but I'm Dave. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the show. Uh, no, you have a question or comment for us? No, I I am in Special Operations Speaks with Ken. He gave me the number to, to call in 
uh, with him. So I don't I don't know what happened to him. We're not we're not in the same place. But I'm uh, involved with you got the same. Pardon? You have the same area code. I do. Yeah. Yep. Then that could be him on the other. Let's try this then. Is this Ken Benway? It is. Uh-huh. Hello. We found you. Hey. It's really interesting not to be able to respond while you're your uh, discussion there. <laughs> Trying to make oh, yourself, we got uh, you. We got you rolling here. Present. We got you rolling. We've got yeah. Dave and Dave. What is your last name, please? Dave Miller. That is very Dave interesting. Is, Dave, okay. is my Dave partner. Miller and. Okay. Go ahead, Ken. Dave is my partner in Special Operations Speaks. Well, welcome aboard, gentlemen. Um, you've got something coming up on Veterans Day. Uh, we were talking about this a lot, about getting more people out there uh, to run against <laughs> the opposition, the Democrats. Uh, and we're finding a large segment is coming from the veterans out there. Yeah, we've uh, for some time now, we've been promoting the notion of veterans uh, running for public office. Uh, the notion to bring duty, honor, country, and confidence to the public square. And we decided uh, to take one more step and try to provide them with some basic uh, uh, campaigning uh, training, a kind of a one-day primer on how to plan, organize, and conduct a successful campaign. And we'll do that here in uh, Southern Pines, North Carolina, on Monday, the 11th of November, that's Veterans Day, uh, from about 9 till till four that day. We're hoping to get about 25 folks to come in to this. Um, we're using an outfit out of uh, Greenville, South Carolina, called Sofield Associates to bring in the, their experts from campaigning and do the training. Fantastic. How many people you got signed up so far? The two, two folks pretty interested. Interestingly enough, One's from Washington State and the other one from California. They're they're both both vets. One is going to run for the governorship in Washington, and the other is uh, running in, uh, for the uh, U.S. Congress 25th district in California. And if there fight. is a veteran out there, if there is a veteran out there looking to challenge someone uh, actively in office or run for a seat, um, how will they get a hold of you? Do they go to your website, SpecialOperationSpeaks.com? That's correct, and uh, they'll they'll see a, a place there to, uh, to to review the the uh, the program for the day, and to be able to sign up for the course uh, via Eventbrite. There's an Eventbrite link to uh, uh, registering. Fantastic, fantastic. So you're going to put them through a boot camp. Yeah. Um, there, there's a John Jones. I think has a organization for a veterans uh, running for office. Let me, I'm going to try to remember to see if I can send you his information. Maybe he has some guys that can go to this boot camp also. So yeah. I'm going to make a note. That's myself. Uh, I think that's Captain, Captain Joe John, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. I, 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 I sent him an info uh, thing on this thing uh, last week. In fact, 
Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. So he's aware of I know. I always know good people to match up. So, Dave, how did you get involved with this? <laughs> well, uh, Ken and I are actually neighbors, and we had known each other for a while. And back in early uh, February 2016, uh, he he and the other founding members of Special Operations Speaks had uh, planned and organized a uh, Veterans Action Patriot Conference in Charleston. So I I got involved in that event specifically, and I've been on board ever since. So Ken and I work together right here. It's, uh, it's very convenient. And we, we, uh, we produce a, a a five minute situation report or sit rep every week. And uh, that's on our website as well. And it's uh, topical uh, and also, of uh, interest to veterans specifically, but anybody I think would uh, benefit by it. So we, we stay pretty busy with that and always, as I'm sure you're well aware, working on a website can be can be a, a very much a labor of love. So we've been uh, kind of tweaking that and getting that where we want it. And so we stay pretty busy and uh, a lot of local meetings trying to get local exposure here since we do have a very large veterans community in the Fort Bragg area, which we're adjacent to. So we're trying to spread the word both nationally and locally. So it keeps us, keeps us busy and, and folks like yourself are an invaluable asset to, uh, you know, to that end. So thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. Now uh, there is a question in the uh, chat room because we know Dan McCready just ran for Congress in North Carolina and he's a captain uh, in the Marine Corps. And he wants to know is that how is it as a veteran who swore the oath, you know, I'm an oath keeper too, uh, to uphold the Constitution? How can he uh, want more background checks and stricter gun gun laws? Um, when you go for these veterans, how do you vet them and how do you make sure that they will uphold our Constitution? Well, you know, there are no guarantees. Um, we're looking for. We tell them specifically that we're looking for veterans who will uphold the U.S. Constitution as written. Um, how they actually exercise that later on is not, you know, nothing we can do about that. But the follow-on to this, this boot camp, for instance, will be to watch them and follow them through their primary if they're having a primary, and we'll get a pretty good sense of where their positions are, what their platforms are at that point. Uh, and we'll make a judgment at that point whether we're going to uh, continue to support them by giving them national visibility via our Facebook and our, our uh, social media, and whether we're going to give them some money too, resource subject to resource availability. Actually, I got a question. So the short the short answer is the short answer is we we have no guarantees as to how they're going to actually perform, but we get a pretty good sense of it. Go ahead, Dave. I well, I've got my co-host, my co-host Curtis, who happens to be a Navy vet. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, um, when it comes to our our special operations um, forces members, how much of it is um, thrill seekers, and how much is, is it patriotism? I, I, it's, it's, it's virtually all patriotism and, and capability. 
by the time they're accepted into a special operations unit, they've been through a very rigorous screening process, physical, psychological, um, academic, etc. Uh, thrill seekers fall away real quick. In fact, they still don't actually make it the actual selection course. So the folks who finally go through that thing are, are and, and, and get to wear the Green Beret or the Navy SEALs, the Trident, etc., they're pretty well vetted. We know what they're about. And what attributes do um, members of Special Forces bring when they run for office? They, they bring a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, experience uh, in the leadership roles, especially. They're uh, pretty, they're pretty much Renaissance men. By the time they they've completed their tour of duty, uh, mm-hmm. one of their primary missions very is to they're pretty knowledgeable. Yes, one of their primary missions World is to organize uh, unconventional warfare forces, uh, either behind enemy lines or close to them. Uh, they're all required to have a language qualification, um, and they've been through about a year and a half worth of training. They know how to they know how to problem solve. Oh yeah, definitely Rich. problem solvers. <laughs> they have to learn how to work as a team individually. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, exactly, and they they may yeah. be working with uh, a host host nation forces where there there might only be half in the case of special forces and the green berets it might be half a team which is six six men and they may be in charge of training up upwards of a, a battalion which is 100 plus and you know deep in the hinterlands so they they really have to be um, on their game they have to use all the the resources they've had available to them in training not only training but the experience they have to be able to speak to people of various cultures, some of them obviously extremely different than our own, and uh, get their get their points across and get done what what needs to be done. So, um, in the public square back home here, they they that's relatively easy to translate back to the United States, where they they have the public at large that they are vying for to to be responsible to take care of folks and to represent them in government so all shapes shapes sizes stripes and backgrounds and so it's it should be for the most part nothing really new to them so it helps a lot now those those six men they still call a team yes the a team is a 12-man detachment uh, uh, and they can oftentimes will go split team so they'll have two six-man elements uh, if they're if they're able to do that man well you guys do marvelous work but go ahead dave no that was ken just wanted just wanted to add that we've 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 expanded our scope a little bit and we we established a, a concept called Vets in the Fight. Uh, vets in the Fight are two things. Uh, first of all, it's, it's honorably discharged veterans who still live by their uh, their uh, military oath. Exactly. Secondly, secondly, uh, we, we expect them to vote 
consistently. We expect them to run for public office, and we expect them to hold government accountable. If they do those three things, they'll be they'll contributed uh, immeasurably to the uh, safety and the sustainment of the republic. Well, now there's so a point we'll made. Well, well, there's a point made in the chat room from a gentleman who was a quartermaster chief um, that the military does require something of a collective mindset, uh, which we really don't want to see. We want to see an individual running for office. So how do you separate the collective mindset to an independent thought? Well, Well, the collective mindset – Go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. Oh well, uh, I think it's it's a, there's a there's a balance to be struck there. Obviously, they have to work with other people in Congress, and there is a collective uh, push uh, with the way Congress works. However, they do have to they do want to have the individualism to represent their unique uh, district back home. And think on their own, and and follow the Constitution, and that that is the the collective side of it. I think is the the, the following the Constitution and staying with that, staying within the the bounds of the Constitution. But when they come back home, then they they very good if they can think on their feet and be that individual. So it's it's I see it as a combination of the two. Both can certainly be beneficial to them and assets to their to their career in uh, in politics as long as they don't stray too far and get an imbalance you know stray one one way or the other too far and then become unbalanced in that uh, in that approach so again what i'm sure you have uh, other ideas on that yeah yeah a great a great example is uh we we supported uh representative dan crenshaw out of texas District 2, he's the uh, retired uh, SEAL lieutenant, lieutenant commander who wears the eye patch there in Congress. Uh, if there ever was an individual uh, who thinks on his feet and on his own, that, that man is it. Uh, he's done a marvelous job. He pushes back it. He's got the uh, AOC and crowd and the squad uh, tied up in knots virtually every day. So... Uh, Special operators, and for that matter, anybody who's been in the senior ranks of the military, um, they're not yes men. They think on their own. But once a decision is made, they will support it for the hilt. Well, you know, it it comes to one of the things I wanted to ask. But, uh, Ken, you mentioned that you and Dave do a uh, podcast also. Where can people find that? Um, we we typically post it uh, a copy of that on our, our website. We also post it to uh, our Facebook page, Special Operations Speaks face, Facebook page. Um, I'll tell you what we'd be we'd be pleased to send you a copy of that every every week after we've uh, published it. Oh, that'd be if great. That's great. You got my you got my email. Uh, but I was starting yes. to ask because you you mentioned the squad. And we know that just the other day was, uh, just two days ago was 9-11. And uh, there was a gentleman who spoke, because they do the reading of the names at the, uh, 
Ground Zero Memorial. And Nicholas Harris Jr., whose mother Frances perished on 9-11, took his time to address Ilian Omar's comment about someone somewhere did something. Uh, what do you do in a situation like that when you have someone that throws in your face that we were attacked we had people that died. You had first responders that are still dying to this day because of it. You have men and women serving overseas to fight these terrorists. Ken, how do you address this? Well, first of all, if you, if you understand that Hilan Omar is part of the Muslim Brotherhood, okay, and they, they, are, they are sworn to um, destroy our republic and replace it with Sharia, with uh, Islamic law. So she is totally bought into that whole that whole notion. Um, so knowing that, you, you can you can you can address that with, with the truth. This fellow was really phenomenal. I'm just amazed at how calm and, and well well composed he was in delivering that that message to her. But uh, he just laid it out as it was. Uh, it was not just somebody who who uh, killed his mother and nearly 3,000 other people that day. It was 19 Muslim terrorists, most of them from Saudi Arabia. Uh, that cannot be refuted, period. And every time Omar tries to do that, she looks more and more of a fool. Uh, people are catching on, certainly. Now, she's got a constituency that are going to go with her no matter what. That's, that's a given. She's out of um, Minneapolis where there's a huge concentration of Somali so-called refugees. And the, the Obama administration, by the way, stacked the deck in many different cities, Dearborn, uh, Detroit, Chicago, with refugees from certain countries, precisely so that they could capture a, a seat in Congress, building up, building up constituency right there to put her in, in, in Congress. Now, she may have a bomb-proof, uh, position now because there are so many Somalis there in Minneapolis to keep reelecting her, and that was the, that was Obama's strategy. You know, it's been said that there are more Somalis here in the United States as quote refugees than there are total Somalis in Somalia. Uh, but thanks to this yep. UN refugee plan and Obozo, uh, as you said, the deck has been stacked. I'm not. I'm, you know, uh, Trump has, has scaled back the rate of uh, uh, so-called refugee uh, inputs. Also, we can get a handle on this thing. That's just one small facet of the whole immigration problem. Um, now, how you break? Uh, you're, break you're, you're breaking up, Ken. Ken, you're breaking up. I'm sorry. Want to try hey. again? Hear me now? Uh, yeah, you you get kind of like a little on the faint side. I'm sorry. That's better. There you go. There you go. That's you a lot better. better. Now? Go ahead, okay. Ken. I yep, just so I stood in my head this time. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not certain how you break this this uh, ironclad uh, hold on that position that Omar is sitting in right now. Um. It, Unless she just, unless somebody challenges her 
gives a good strong challenge to her. And I, I, I believe there are a couple of people who intend to primary her, both on uh, on the Democratic side of the House, and somebody's going to go after her from the uh, Republican side too. So we'll see how that all all plays out. I don't think she's uh, uh, made a lot of friends in the short time she's been there in Congress. Hmm. And she's going to find I don't hard think she has get, either. She's going to find it hard to get to get uh, any support from the DNC, I believe. Absolutely, absolutely. Dave, do you want to add to that? Well, I uh, we're in a precarious position with with Republicans, and many of them, as we know are rhinos. They're Republican in name only, and they just don't have the backbone to to counterattack uh, somebody like Omar or AOC or uh, Tlaib when they say these outrageous things. And they, they have said many racist, anti-Semitic things, and it's, it's their belief. And it's, it's the responsibility of the Republicans, because we know the Democrats aren't going to say anything, but is their responsibility too to hold these people accountable, their own peers up there in in Congress and the Senate, to hold them responsible for the things they're saying? And this this isn't happening. So it's a grassroots movement that has to take the bull by the horns. We are, after all, as I think many of our many of our fellow citizens have forgotten or don't know, we are the government. And we have been given the responsibility by our founders to protect this republic, to keep this republic if we can. And the only way we can do that is like one of the pillars that that Ken mentioned is to hold politicians, those in elected office, hold them accountable. And this is one of the things that a a grassroots movement, if more people would call their, their congressmen and women, if they would call their senators and write them and and barrage them with complaints about these things they will not they will not do anything until they feel the heat of their constituency so that is one of the ways another way is is exactly what you're doing with with your show with uh with our sit reps with many other programs that are out there we're not just talking to uh the choir we're not singing to the choir there are a lot of people that are uh, what is it? The walk away movement, uh, hashtag walk away that have gotten fed up with a number of these people. We need to nurture that, uh, as a matter of fact. And I agree with Ken that in the case of Ilan Omar, she, she has a, a rock solid core constituency. However, there are other avenues to take and Congress happens to be one of those avenues. Unfortunately, they won't do anything until we let them know we're watching, we're listening, and we are fed up with it. So that's my two cents on <laughs> on that. Well, it's a wonderful. I think sense. that uh, I think that um, Americans are are hungry for military you know members who who are known for you know their discipline, their integrity, and their honor, and that's what we are lacking. On Capitol Hill, it seems. Yes, sir. You know, people go there and they get corrupt, and they get power hungry. So I, I think it's a great thing, you know, to try to recruit, especially you know, special forces types, because they are super soldiers. They go far and above 
what the um, average soldier, you know, soldier or seller goes through or airman. So, you know, the more, hey, the merrier, the happier I am if we could get them in Congress. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Could you not agree you more. If, if I could add something to that, um, we're, we're hoping certainly that folks will, will uh, shoot for uh, Congress and the uh, – uh, the legislative bodies at the state level, but we're also hoping some folks go after some of these local school boards. Uh, some mm. of the oh, school yeah. boards are totally out of control. And, we got to uh, turn that around. The, and we need some adult leadership on these school boards. Uh, they're doing some tremendous damage to us, uh, to our children. So we, we so we're not only we're not only looking folks to go to, to Washington. We we folks building a good, uh, solid program at home. Well, it comes up to where I say this many times. All politics are local. When you go and have the school boards, your local council, uh, your mayor, whatever, all politics start local. And if you think the people sitting in D.C. are not watching what the local towns are doing, then you're very mistaken. They want to see who we're electing. And who will move up the food chain because your school board official becomes your county councilman, county councilman becomes your state legislator, state legislator becomes your your senator, your state, your federal senator. It goes all the way up. So if you don't handle it in the local level here and now, you're dooming us further down the road. You're absolutely right. Yeah. By the way, North and Carolina those- just had us two. North Carolina had a special election this past week, and we won. The Republicans oh, yeah. won both, both seats. Both of them, yeah. <laughs> That's a good now, y'all know, What's the time? I hope. Y'all know when you become very successful at this and put a lot of people in office, the left is going to come after you because y'all don't have no women. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, uh, Facebook. Facebook has been. Uh, Shadow banning. You got no GI no Jane. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, would well, lo- you know, we would love to have some women come in. We would absolutely love to have some well, women you know, come the, into this uh, boot camp. Good. Well, the funny thing is, is that uh, on Fox News earlier today in the morning, Charles Payne was uh, on, who was being interviewed. And he Charles. had mentioned how his mother had been involved in the local politics. And she had a meeting at the house. It was her turn, a woman's meeting. And he went to his room to study for school. And he was studying history. And one of these women came into his room to see what he was doing. So he was studying. She goes, well, what are you studying? He goes, it was history. And he had the presidents, the book on all the presidents was open on his desk or whatever. And she goes, you know what the one problem with that is? And she's looking at the presidents. She goes, he goes, no, what? What's wrong with this? They're all white men. All white men. And Charles Payne has been African-American. And he goes, you know what? Instead of making me side with her, she got me mad. As if I'm a victim of something, that I'm not as good as anyone else. And this is the problem we have with the left. They use the victim, victimization of individuals, whether you're a male or female. To make it look like you're bad at something, you're not good enough. So they have to turn around and tell yeah. you how your life should be. 
Whereas we, on the other hand, say, leave us alone. Let us leave our, live our lives the way we want. And everyone has an equal footing under the eyes of the law. Did Absolutely. you see a problem with that, Dave? Absolutely. Okay. Go ahead, Dave. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, related to that, uh, Liz Wheeler on OAN was just up in arms because um, I think it's – is it Mattel? I forget. The the makers of uh, Monopoly, Monopoly came out – Yes. Came out with Ms. Oh, yes. Monopoly. So when <laughs> the woman is playing, she gets two hundred forty dollars for pass and go, and the man only gets two hundred. And she was up in arms. She said the same thing that you're talking about, where I can take care of myself. Thank you very much. I don't need you to tell me that I'm not good enough as as a man to be able to uh, to take care of myself. And she, she said. And I'm pretty good at Monopoly, by the way. So, yeah, I can handle these things myself. I don't need this. Uh, I don't need this extra help from somebody that's, you know, hundreds of miles away telling me how I should live my life. So I thought that was that was pretty funny. But it's the same thing. It, it really is. It's it's uh, people that living in that Washington bubble, li- rebreathing the same air. Uh, telling America who they hold in disdain, we are the deplorables after all, telling us how we should live, what's good for us, no plastic straws, so on and so forth. And all it's done is ruin just about every major city in this country run by Democrats and ruining people's lives over and over and over again. So you're absolutely right. We can take care of ourselves. Thank you very much. That's the American way. You know, to take that even a step further, and I've told the story many times that when I was in high school and it was my turn to go to the guidance counselor to determine where I'm going to go after high school, I sat down with my guidance counselor. He was the football coach. And he (laughs) goes, this is my suggestion to you. In your final two years of high school, take secretarial courses. Go out and get your job Mm -hmm. as a secretary. And marry your boss. True story. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Two years later, oh. I walked into the high school during the adult education. I'm walking in, and the person running the adult education courses, the, the, whatever you want to call it, uh, curriculum, was my guidance counselor, the football coach. And the first thing he said when he saw me walk in, and I was in business attire, he goes, oh, I see uh, you're taking my advice and taking secretarial courses. And I said, no, Mr. Hotchkiss. He has since passed away. And I said, no, Mr. Hotchkiss, I'm teaching one of your courses. I have a degree in business administration. I own a business right down the street, a travel agency with 13 employees. I am teaching your travel course. And you should have seen his draw drop. <laughs> and this is what but these are the types of people we want to see run for office. Right? Yeah. We do. We want people that know that they uh and it starts in the family, but we want people that know that they can take care of themselves. They have they are not victims. They are not victims. They are Americans. We're all Americans, whatever we look like, whatever background we come from. I mean look look at uh Dr. Ben Carson, my goodness, if anybody had the the excuse to to play the victim card, he did. But did he? No. And 
you don't get much more successful than somebody like that. So you're right. You're right. There are a lot of people out there. We're trying to tap into this resource uh, with veterans to transition away from the way of thinking in the army or the Navy or air force Marines, because they stay, they shy away from politics and rightfully so they have to remain neutral. But once they're out, we say, let the tiger out of the cage and go for it and do what you know is best for your country. Well, it's funny. Chief, chief in the chat, chat room, I got some of the funniest people in my chat room. I wanted to know if I hired some guy as my secretary and did I marry him? But at one point, I did manage a law firm. I was the assistant to the senior partner, and I did hire male clerks. <laughs> no, I did not marry any of them. <laughs> Even though I do believe in a marriage in superior firepower. And just out of curiosity, where was that? Uh, this was just up in Long curiosity. Island. Where was that? Long Island. Okay. This is Long Island, Westbury, Westbury, Long Island. <laughs> or as I called it, way very high. Oh man, we're out of control here, folks. So this is live radio. Can't get any better than this. Uh, now, no, uh, I, I got another question. Uh, you know, one of the big issues I, I wanted to harp just a little bit more on on the the shadow banning uh, that the big uh, big information is doing. We used to we oh, were getting yeah. uh, over Facebook, six months. Google, over, Twitter, okay. yeah, Twitter, yeah. Facebook. Google. Yeah, those that whole crowd. But we, for for about six months straight, we were hitting, we were reaching two hundred on Facebook. We were reaching two hundred fifty thousand people each week. And now they've they've scaled us back. They they shadow banned us, uh, and down to a point where we're getting fifty thousand people a week. So the handwriting is on the wall for twenty twenty. Big information is going to put the squash on conservative talk. Well, that is strange because I pulled out something about DARPA, and I do believe it is in your list of articles I had for you to talk about. And they're coming out, DARPA, which is the government agency, has come out with an algorithm in which they're going to run it against the social networks to determine whether or not something is fake news. Have you heard about that? Not specifically. Hmm. No. Uh, That's interesting. No, not for me. I must have, I'm going to have to see if I can find that article and shoot it over to you, Ken. I did have it in the list of one of these. It's one of the articles I'm flipping through, and I don't see where I put it. But, yeah, there is – our own government is going to determine whether or not something is fake news or not. What what happened to freedom of speech? What happened to satire? This this was it the yes. uh, Sacramento Bee uh, was being banned yeah. because it's it's a satire site, but yet it's fake news. They're misleading the public. <laughs> what business is it of the government to tell us what we can say or print or do? Absolutely In a nothing. word, none. They have no, no role. And we shouldn't let them have a role. 
All right. Now I'm trying to find this article. And like I said, after the show, I'm going to see if to go back through these papers and see if I can find it. But, yeah, the agency through Department of Homeland Security, DARPA, is going to use this algorithm to determine whether or not something is real or fake news. The Babylon Bee, thank you very much, Sasquatch, in the chat room. Corrected me, not Sacramento. Babylon Bee, yeah, is the one that uh, is the satire magazine that was being banned all over the place. And now they're fighting back and they're suing. Thank God they're doing that. But again, we're going to have a huge problem in 2020, uh, 2020 in getting the conservative message out there and to support the candidates we want to support. If we have things like Facebook and Google and all the others banning us from doing stuff, and I, I've seen it on my own website, a slowdown on the hits also, where I used to get a ton, and now all of a sudden now I'm looking every week and I see the numbers dropping. And then yep. you have government stepping in. This is the deep state times 10. It is, and DARPA, DARPA yeah. is uh, a, a huge research and development think tank, and so they're, they're, I'm sure that they're – Whatever algorithms they come up with are going to be very, very intrusive into our lives. And there is – well, one thing, one alternative that, that Ken found was to, uh, to Facebook was MeWe.com, M-E-W-E.com. And they are far, far better. They don't – they're not intrusive. They don't – now they, they do have stand, community standards, but they don't – Sell us. We are the commodity on Facebook, after all, and so they don't sell the information. They don't uh, ban anybody. They don't shadow ban unless somebody is completely off the rails. And it's a far, far better thing. We we uh, we push that just about every week on our on our weekly podcast. And uh, but right, there was a very, very interesting, uh, and I can't think of his name. Uh, at, not Epstein, but there was a doctor that uh, testified before a Senate subcommittee in, in, Frank, uh, in fact, in front of Ted Cruz, who was a, a staunch Hillary supporter. But he had worked in behavioral sciences for, I think, close to 40 years. And what he said was that 20, uh, 2016 was almost an anomaly because the Democrats all believed their own press releases and they believed Hillary had a 96 or 98% chance of winning and so they they laid back they rested on their laurels and they really didn't do much of anything 2018 they started to come out and all the local and state races and he said you can bet that in 2020 there will be no holds barred and they will come out strong and I think we're seeing just the tip of the iceberg right now and it's it is cyber warfare. Uh, in yeah, fact, now, I, I found the article. Yeah, I, I did find the article. Uh, it was up on Big League Politics by Shane Trajo, and um, yeah, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency DARPA, which is part of the I said uh, Homeland Security, it's part of DOD. And it's going to project against large-scale automated disinformation attacks. So if you use one of these services, um, what was the one I used to use? I forget. Um, that it would go to 
various different social websites when I made a post. Um, so if you use one of those services that will spider it out, they're going to determine whether or not what you're putting out there is real or fake news. And that's scary. It is. It will be debuting the state-of-the-art software to detect misinformation that is hidden within 500,000 pieces of media to demonstrate its efficiency. After a four-year test run, the software likely will be expanded to the detection of malicious content, a nubious term that can be used to encompass pretty much anything. Now, can you imagine malicious content restriction under the Obama administration? The word Tea Party gotten you banned sure yeah liberty i was was scared i I was banned from facebook for a week because i used the term illegal alien oh god that that, uh that violated their community quote community standards and it was therefore hate speech and therefore i was shut down for a week both both SOS and my personal account now at one point didn't government try to say that anyone that was a Tea Party individual, anyone that was a military veteran, uh, yep. that we were terrorists, that we were bad, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't have guns, we should have our First Amendment restricted? So it, it, just by saying what we're saying here now could get us banned and probably investigated. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's uh, it's very nebulous. All these definitions change. They're all relative, whatever they want them to be, just like Facebook and Twitter, Google and all that. It's whatever strikes them as being bad today. Look how they weaponized the IRS, Obama's IRS. They weaponized them, and, and I believe that there are some organizations that are still fighting their uh, their tax exempt status or trying to get one in the first place. This has been years, and so that they'll weaponize DARPA against us. And and the thing, the scary thing is, is without an article like this, how many people are reading that article and aware of it? Probably not a whole lot. And they can do this sub rosa, and most people will never be wise to it. It's it's very insidious. Absolutely. Now, as T points out in the chat room, well, Curtis, as T points out in the chat room, that uh, Orwell called what is now what we call DARPA the Ministry of Truth in the book 1984. Mm-hmm. He already predicted yes. this happening to us back in the 1940s. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah. Going back in history, uh, in the 40s and 50s, I'm talking about Hollywood. They put out pro, pro patriotic, you know, war movies, and then the seventies and sixties came, sixties and seventies, and it was anti-war and anti-American, anti-military, and then there came a movie called Top Gun, and then Black Hawk Down and Thirteen Hours, which you know, pretty patriotic movies. Um, Top Gun supposedly was a good recruiting tool for the Navy at that time in 86. But Top Gun is coming out of all years, 2020, Top Gun 2. Uh, do you think that's going to um, be helpful to patriots? Boy, that's a good question because yeah, uh, I 
I, I have my suspicions. I have my doubts because of what the Hollywood has done to uh, not a genre that I particularly care for, but all these superhero movies, you know, uh, oh, yeah, uh, Avenger. Wonder Woman and Supergirl and, and all the, the other Marvel comics uh, movies that have come out. And they, they are making sure that they are politically correct. And, uh, you know, they've got, uh, lesbians in charge and, and it's, uh, they have spun it to where it is politically correct. So it's hard to tell what they'll do with, with Top Gun. That's really, that's a good question. I, I suspect that they'll, they'll fool with it. Well, I saw the trailer. It looked really nice. They got the trailer out now, so I was just thinking, you know, maybe it, it will cause some people to become more patriotic. It's just like what happened the 4th of July. Trump, had, you know, he honored the military, and the left fought it every inch of the way because when you have um, events like that that involves the military and flags and things, people become more patriotic about their country, especially here in the United mm-hmm. States. And I was just thinking of the optics of it all, you know. Will it cause more people to, you know, vote Republican or join the military or what? Because Hollywood does have an influence. They certainly I think do. They, yeah. I, I think if they try to politicize it, it's going to fizzle on them. And just about every, just about every uh, movie that's come out with a uh, expressing their political uh, dislike of Trump, etc. Has not done well, so I hope this is a great movie. I hope it. I hope it is a patriotic thing. I hope it yeah. is check positive. Out, check out the trailer. Yeah, I have to do that. Check out the trailer. But um, well, I mean, they can't remember that something like Black Hawk Down or um, Thirteen Hours because that those were based on real situations, world events. Mm-hmm. And those guys were courageous. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. We got a lot of new stuff coming out. Well, you also got to remember that the political left has been bastardizing movies and everything left and right. We got 007 is now a female. James Bond is now Jane Bond. Political correctness (laughs) has run amok. And, you know, I used to be a big fan of Doctor Who, and Doctor Who was born genetically a man, but somehow or other in his regeneration, it is now a she. Which made me stop watching. So they're, they're they're touching anything and everything to propagandize our society, and, and this is something that we have to all and exactly, and we have to all fight against it. And that's why we need good people running for office, starting with your dog catcher all the way on up. Once again, all politics can is local, correct? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And we, we hope we can do our part here in, in, in November. I would uh, Hopefully the listeners out there, you've got a, a, a large uh, military uh, support. Oh, followers. Oh, there. yeah. <coughs> and we hope that well, if, you know, anybody's out there think, if anybody's out there Go thinking ahead, about considering the possibility of running for office, by God, come on and, and join our, uh, our boot camp and see what it's all about. Absolutely. You know, I just got to make one comment because I had received an email. I was getting, I subscribed to a bunch of different stuff 
And this one guy was looking for donations uh, to help support you know, certain things that he was doing. And I guess he wasn't doing as well as he thought he was, and he had to close down a few. So he sends out a new plea for donations. However, and I thought you would really love this part, he includes, we once put our hope in the Tea Party, but it proved to be totally ineffective as they are establishment-funded, thus their goals must be in compliance with their establishment donors. You know that is not how blah, blah, blah operates. Now, I'm a Tea Party activist. I'm a Tea Party founder. And I, I turned around. I just wrote back to him saying I was willing to help you until you self-righteously insulted the Tea Party movement. As a Tea Party leader, leader for 10 years and still active, I take extreme offense to your email message. Then I told him, allow me to educate you on what the real Tea Party is about. We are not a unified group or organization under a single leader. We are individual groups that unify under like-minded ideals, principles, and issues. These are limited government, lower taxes, and support of the Constitution. While such large group as Tea Party Patriots and Tea Party Nation accept donations, many groups like my own do not accept any donations. We do work with the aforementioned groups on issues. However, we remain independent and do not permit anyone to dictate influence or control our action. And then I said, past years, because of our Tea Party and neighboring Tea Parties, we have overturned our school board, counties and county seats. We have changed a scandal-ridden school superintendent. We have stopped several tax referendum increases, and we have elected uh, conservatives to our state house and governorship. And these are the very things that you're talking about doing, Ken. Precisely. And it, it, takes, it takes a few good, dedicated activists to energize the whole uh, local populace to do what you did. And you're to be commended for it, no question. Now, this is going to segue into my next thought. Have you uh, talked to uh, Joe Dugan of the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition? Because he may know a veteran that could help you. Hmm. Yeah, I've got. In fact, I've got Joe's email address. I'll, I'll drop him a line. That's a, that's a great idea. Excellent idea. Good segue. He's a good, good man. Good segue. Well, we're down. We're down to our last few minutes on the show, and we've had a blast with all of our guests, uh, from Kathy Landing, who's running here for South Carolina District One, uh, Judge Jeanine Pirro, Dr. Bruce Hartman, and now you, Ken Benway. Uh, people can find you on Twitter by going to Sand. Hills Ken as welcome aboard Dave Miller working with you on specialoperationspeaks.com you guys do great work and God bless you for the hard work you do gents oh yeah thank you well, thank, thank you so it. very much thank you all right and on, you uh, have you have your boot camp oh, I'm sorry I was just going to say your boot camp is going to be on Veterans Day November 11th if you have a veteran out there that you know of that is running for office that they should get in touch with you or Dave. That's correct. Yes. Drop us, drop us a website. line. Yep. Yep. Drop us a yep. line. Be, go to the website. website or... <laughs> the <bossy laughs> go, ahead. go ahead, Ken. Y'all need, y'all need a traffic cop. Ken, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> you go yeah, first. Through the website. Through, through the website. Uh, and, and, or for that matter, through uh, Facebook, uh, send a message, a PM through uh, Facebook if need be. 
No, I was uh, going to say the exact same thing that Ken was. The, the website, we can register right on there. There is an early bird uh, special, so that'll drop the price some. It's also in the heart of golf country, so uh, they could even turn it into a nice little <clears throat> nice little uh, event for themselves. And uh, it, it's, it is going to uh, lay out the, the organization, funding, social media, all that. And it is a, a, comp, a compacted day. It is a full, full day. And we'll end with a, a great dinner and speaker. So it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful right. event. And I hope cocktails, too. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you. can his cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Ken Fenway yeah. and Dave Miller, check them out over at Special Operations Speaks. Also check out their podcast. They put it up there once a week. Again, specialoperationspeaks.com. Uh, Curtis, that's all we got for today. Um, we will be back next week. I think Peter Dabrowska is going to join us again. He's the one that wrote the book on AOC, which is hysterical. Great book. Really yeah. opens your eyes on on where her donations and backing and money come from that people can get up on Amazon. He is also running for office. So he will be joining us. I do believe last I got the message from him. He was looking at next Friday. Um, And uh, I think that's all I got for now. I'll let you know who else we end up for uh, next Friday. It has been a fun Friday the 13th. And I want to thank everyone that was listening in, in the studio, those that participated in the chat room. I have tried doing the video one more time. If it works good, it will go up on YouTube and also up on Facebook. So Ken can probably latch onto my website if it's successful and put it onto his special operations speaks. Uh, That's it. Have you got anything else to add, uh, Curtis? No, it's been a fun three hours and I mean it just flowed I, I will say we got to get Mike Hill back on <laughs> see what he's up to <laughs> legislative oh we, have, oh we have so many great great people um, yeah. and I'm looking at some of my notes and that's all I got for now so I want to thank again okay. everyone that joined us and I will leave you uh, with my closing number Uh, when the roll is called up yonder. So until then, I say good night and God bless.